יאללה לב טוב, עין טובה, מחשבה טובה והרבה הרבה שמחה. הרבה 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 שמחה. התכוננת על מקומו ועוד מעט ואין רשע. Shalom everybody and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. And shalom and welcome to a special show that we have today in honor of Chaye Sarah, the Torah portion uh, that talks about the purchase of Abraham, purchased by Abraham of the Tomb of the Ancestors. You're going to hear all about that in the segments that we have coming up. I have three segments of the show today. First is with Rav Mike Foyer. And uh, with Rabbi Mike, we talk uh, about the Torah portion and about that first purchase. And then you're going to hear me talking with uh, a Brigadier General, Amir Avivi, who is the founder of the Bitchonistim. The Bitchonistim is a movement that's uh, kind of countermanding the efforts by some Israeli security personnel to make it look like there's only one way forward, which is the two-state solution. So you'll hear a little bit uh, from Amir, and maybe you heard me talking about it with uh, Hen Mazik when we had that debate. And thirdly, you're going to have my discussion that uh, happened uh, with my friends in Australia, which is the AJA, the IJI, and uh, I had a talk with them uh, on Zoom, gave them a little bit of a rundown of what's going on in the Middle East and how the American elections are affecting that. So let's get right to it with Rav Mike Foyer talking about Chaye Sarah. Shalom, everybody. Yishai Fleischer here, and you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show. We have a great uh, uh, show for you today. Rav Mike Foyer joins me. Rav Mike, shalom and welcome. Oh, shalom, Yishai. It's great to see you. All right. We're going to start in just a minute. We're just kind of getting everybody uh, on board right now. We'll let the uh, Facebook and the, all the algorithms do their magic. Uh, you know, we'll if get... you're going to do this on Facebook, I'll share it too. Yeah, you share it. You share it. And uh, we're just saying hi to everybody right now uh, just, before we, um, just before we actually start. So I'm very excited. And this is actually, as, as you could probably guess, Rav Mike, this is one of my yeah. favorite tour portions, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, saw it coming, saw it coming. It's true, it's true. So I want everybody to uh, say hi before uh, we start the actual show. If you have a, a hello to say, let's do it right now. Uh, and I'd love to hear where you're uh, uh, watching from, where you are in the world, and um, if you're excited, like I am, for Parshat Chaye Sarah. We're going to be starting in just a minute. Uh, and less than a minute, less than a minute. You see my background, Rev Mike? How do you like my background? It's bold. It's bold. I like the corner shot. That's right, the corner shot. Okay, there he is. Now that Lou is here. at the corner of uh, 42nd Broadway? No, it's, you see, it's the, the, the flag of Israel on uh, the yeah. Maratha Machpelah. It's the uh, southeastern corner. Uh, southeastern corner, right. Uh, and Lou is here, so that means that we can start... So let's start. Yeah, he says, Shalom here is. Let me put him up on the screen for a second. He says, Shalom, Isha and Rav Mike. Shalom, Rav Lou. Good to see you all the way from Modi. God bless you. All right. So people are joining. So let's start the show. Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. And Shalom and welcome to our beloved Rav Mike Foyer. Rav Mike, Shalom and welcome. Oh, Shalom, Ishai. It's good to see you. All right, Rav Mike, uh, this is a big Torah portion for me uh, and really for everybody, but, but, but this is a one I'm particularly close to and excited about. Uh, and it is the Torah portion of Chaye Sarah. Uh, Chaye Sarah is the Torah portion that delineates the purchase of the Tomb of the 
fathers and oh, we have a new term. Maka came up with this. I'm very excited. I wanted right. to tell you, Tomb of the Ancestors. Ooh. Tomb of the Ancestors. Oh, it sounds so like Easterns. Right. It's Eastern sounding, and it's also it's instead of forefathers and mothers. Yeah, it's a mouthful. You want to say both, but it's a mouthful to say the patriarchs and matriarchs. You know, it is. It is a. It is a mouthful. Uh, I like it. So, Tomb of the Ancestors. Tomb of the Ancestors. It's just that simple. Uh, and and the, 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 the amazing narrative of the um, Middle East-style negotiations that went down between the Hittites uh, and uh, Abraham. By the way, I found out yesterday something I didn't know is that Amalek actually comes from a union down the line between Esav and one of the daughters of the Hittites. Uh, and I, right. I did not... And I didn't, I didn't catch that. And then there's a whole matrix that says that the ten times that the that the or there's there's like some kind of count of ten times that the Hittites bow down to Abraham. It's not in in the in just in this part of the story, but in any case, all altogether they're like ten times, and that counts against uh, you know for the Hittites and for Amalek like ten times because when you do something good to Abraham, that counts down the generations. In any case, uh, we have the, the famous story of the negotiation, the purchase. And then once there's the this this ultimate moment for Abraham, which is on the one hand the burial of his beloved wife, but on the other hand the purchase of Eretz Israel, which is something that he has yearned for ever since God said to him, "Go to the land that I will show you, and you'll be part of this you know great land. Uh, you'll you'll walk in it. You'll 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 control it. You'll own it. I'm giving you this land." But he never had ownership of it until this Torah portion. Then we're gonna, I'm just kind of giving uh, an overview. Then we go. Sure. Into the story of the servant who goes to get a person to take a woman, a wife for right. Yitzchak, to take the place of Sarah to continue that mission in the way you would say it. Continue the mission uh, of Sarah. We have the the union, the coming together of of uh, Yitzchak and Rivka, and then we have the death of Abraham, and then the final generational ta- kind of. Uh, what do you want to call it? The listing of... Yeah, of summary of the generations, yeah. Summary of generations of, of Ishmael's. So that's the Torah portion. In in some ways, I want to say that it's one of the most tight thematic Torah portions yeah. there are. There's not like a lot of sub-stories and a different story and, a, and another adventure. It's all kind of like one arc of an adventure. It's Sarah's being buried and then finding Rivka. Next generation starts and Yitzchak and Rivka will, will, will go on their path and... Here's where Ishmael went, and that's it. So it's like a very, it's a very tight arc of a story. It and is. There's also, there's also a lot of, um, uh, what's it called, uh, like dialogue. There's a lot of like very uh, stage dialogue, like the kind of dialogue that you would have on a on a on a, on a play on a Broadway stage. It's like there's a yeah, lot of like sure. back and forth. So so that's 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 the exciting thing. Now for uh, for for on the on the political. And um, what do you want to call it? On the kind of realpolitik level, today, Parshat Chai Sarah is when, when generally about thirty to 40,000 people come to Kirat Arba Chevron, about a tenth of the Knesset shows up, and we stay for Shabbat together, and we read this Torah portion together. This year, not happening. The police is shutting it down. We've been COVIDized. Okay? Uh, so, yeah, another so like, casualty of 2020. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and yet, I want you to know that I have been extremely busy this week because the Jewish community of Hebron, along with another organization that works in Hebron called Harchivi, uh, which is about purchasing property from Arabs, 
and we're about developing old properties and getting rights from um, from the Israeli government to develop those properties. We are having a joint Israeli campaign. So we've worked on movies and 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 you'll see uh, all kinds of flyers and all kinds of things. And you're going to get WhatsApp, and I'm obviously going to hit you up for money also. And so uh, it's it's good thing awesome. I have WhatsApp. You'll have a hard time doing that. <laughs> right, right. That's right. Uh, but it's it's really a huge campaign, and it's been a lot of fun to have a very Israeli focused campaign, and to really help uh, Israelis come around the issue of developing this thing that they're reading about in the Torah portion. Fantastic. I mean, listen, there's been so much. I want to throw into the mix of what we're talking about. Also, the passing of one of the really great um, minds and souls and leaders of our generation. You know, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Right, which is just another loss that this year has brought to us. So it's it's all in the mix right now. It is really amazing how many big rabbis of of what is clearly now the previous generation have passed away. I didn't think of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs as somebody of the previous generation. He died, I think, at age seventy two. He was young, but he was just such a presence. And just this morning, uh, he was it was extremely prolific, extremely prolific. Unbelievably uh, so. Unbelievably prolific, and and everything is good stuff. Nothing all there good. is no right. So so today I got a video which you know you know you know there's a lot of stuff being sent around, but then something touches yeah. you. Sometimes yeah, you sure. take that five to ten minutes and you you delve into something you know and you you go a little more than shallow. Um, and what what was sent to me today by my friend uh, Eli Ben David, he sent he sent a a, a, a video. Of Rabbi, a YouTube video of Rabbi Sachs explaining one of Leonard Cohen's songs uh-huh. and giving a tribute to Leonard Cohen and and uh, comparing it to Jewish texts and Jewish Kabbalah and, and verses. And this was an ode to Leonard Cohen, but it turned out to be an ode to sure. Jonathan Sachs to just see how this guy is... is speaking and, talk, and 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 he had something that my mother always says is one of the greatest lacking characteristic traits in the jewish people he had class <laughs> he did have. he he was a class that, that was the british side of him yeah but he like he he he, yeah, no, he, he i mean the the element of, of dignity of kavod that he personally held and that he brought to the torah i mean to me one of the most important aspects of Rabbi Sachs that I take as a personal example was his absolute faith and commitment to Torah and Am Yisrael and the very particular and, and special and important mission of our people um, and his sort of um, fearless engagement of the world as a whole and this assumption that the two do not contradict. Even if we don't understand how they work together, right? I mean, even if sometimes it's always going to be a bit of a give and take in one's life or even one's generation, Nevertheless, this sort of underlying deep emuna that he held of the chosenness and mission of the Jewish people and the fact that, that all of creation is, is a manifestation of God's will. And therefore, the two must work together somehow. Now, I really uh, take that as a guiding light. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very powerful thing that you're saying. Uh, and I also heard that he had a meeting with the Lubavitcher Rebbe when he was young. And he told the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I'm not sure if I should be an economist, a scholar, and there was a, yet a third one. And they, they, none of them were rabbi. And, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe said to him, I, I think you should go into Jewish education. And he like was shocked by this thing. He said you should go into Kirov in Jewish education. Right. And, but then what he said at the end was, 
I went into Jewish education because of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I ended up doing scholarly work and literary work and econ ec economist work. And I spoke in front of all these places, and I, and I inspired people in those fields as well. And, as a and, rabbi, right. As a rabbi. And I, I thought to myself, there's, there's a deep truth in that. I've seen that many times. I've seen yeah. that people that go into Torah end up doing everything. Listen, Katante, I wouldn't compare myself, but I can say that that what I've found is that if you if you are true to not just your own selfhood, but the reality is, and this is a challenge for all Jews, is that we're living a a intergenerational mission. We're living, I mean, thousands of years of momentum, and so sometimes it's difficult to differentiate between the I don't want to say superficial because that sounds dismissive, but the the surface elements of our identity where I was born and the education I got and the values of the time in which I found myself. It's hard to differentiate between the direction that those pieces dictate and the deep calling of the, of the Torah, of our history of redemption, which is just begging, begging for outlets in our world. Um, and I think that always, and I like, I get students to say to me, I want to go into a history. I don't know if I make a money, does the world need more, you know, more rabbis, more teachers. I don't know if the world needs more rabbis. I can tell you the world needs more Torah. Mm -hmm. So if a person has the capacity to bring out, be it classic elements and make them accessible, be it new faces of the Torah that can help sort of illuminate the world, there's, there's never, and you know, the irony is, and I'll tell you this, you know, in terms of just the reality of 2020 and COVID and how many of us are struggling with jobs. And say, so, you know, I had this realization as, as thank God, Life is, has been very kind to me, and the Lord has been very kind to me in this last year um, in many ways. I realized, you know what? Torah is a long-term business, so to speak. Like everything else I consider doing with my life, you know, like Torah is here. It was always here. It's, gonna, it's not going anywhere. So, so in, in, as an investment, so to speak, I hate to sound crude, but it is a, it is a winner. That's, I, I, think, I, think, I think there's a... A practical truth to what you're saying, and that's I'm experiencing it's, it's, it. Right, it's only practical in the sense that that God wants us to do it, and so therefore He gives us blessings yes. through it. And it's, and it's, it's like what you said; it's like what the world wants. The world wants they don't need another. They need a Torah economist, you know, yeah. a, a rabbi that'll give him a thing. Speaking, by the way, of a Torah economist, uh, Lou is reminding us also which is another big rabbi passed away. The only difference is, is that he died at the age, I think, of 91, and that's Rabbi David Feinstein. Yes. Uh, who was a very, very big rabbi. Now, if you read the Blue Stone Chumash, which I always recommend as a primer for anybody who wants to get close to Judaism, whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew, wants to understand better, the Stone Edition Art Scroll Chumash, which has fabulous and extremely, extremely worked-on commentary. Yeah, very um, accessible. Very accessible and, 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 and the heart of Judaism, you'll get it. A lot of, a lot of times, Rabbi David Feinstein is quoted in that commentary. Uh, and he passed away also, I think, last Friday. Yeah. And he's actually the brother-in-law of my American rabbi, Rabbi Moshe David Tendler. Uh, and uh, who, he's obviously, you can hear by the name, the son of the famous Rav Moshe. Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein, the great uh, halachic decider. Uh, the the Baal Igrod Moshe, the, the the author of the Igrod Moshe. So we had two big rabbis uh, that uh, that passed away, um, and Rabbi Feinstein was was very sad, and his funeral was huge, humongous, 
And Rabbi Sachs was a was a shock. We knew we were praying for him, and then suddenly on his Twitter, it was very sex. Yeah, it was just yeah. like it was. It, it, I don't know. It was one of those things where you see it. You saw that I saw it on Twitter. I went to Twitter. Somebody said, "I think Rabbi Sachs must have passed away." I went to his Twitter account. They had a, 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 a announcement there, and it was just like one of those moments where you're like, <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, uh, oh, you're like, you, you you choke up because you think like this is this was a this was a great man. And my uh, my 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 uh, Ishai Kuma thought, my Aliyah thought. Uh, my, you know, the 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 uh, about the exile, about about the about the Jewish diaspora, was that the Jewish diaspora just took a big blow, because big. right, because he, he was the most important rabbinic voice in diaspora, right. And I had a nickname for him amongst my friends, as I, I called him is. the the Exilarch. Yeah, the Rish right? and he was right. I mean, because he, he represented yeah. everything graceful in every sense of that word, right. We, about Am Yisrael in exile. And we've spoken about it before, that uh, both of us are of the mind, even though we're deep believers, not only in, in Zionism, but in, in the centrality and importance of Eretz Yisrael, that it's hard to look at the history of Am Yisrael and say that the, the Galut has given us nothing. That's a silly perspective, in my humble opinion. Um, and, and there's, a, there's a, a side of the soul of Am Yisrael which actually only comes to fruition right. in exile. Right. Um, and, and, and Rabbi Sachs embodied all of the grace that um, that Amisel could find in exile in that sense. He was both a top uh, thinker, a top writer, uh, but also a, an unbelievable representative. He was a diplomat Jewish. in the true yeah. sense. Yeah. Right, right, right. Without okay. any of the cynicism people have around the diplomatic world. Uh, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs uh, will be remembered. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Uh, don't leave off Lord. You know, you, you it's not easy to get. That's not small. Yeah, you know, and I mean, then, even I have Micha. <laughs> my my right. peerage no, is not on the horizon. No lordship. That's right. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. that, but by the way, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs also reminds me of the UK because he was from the UK and with all that with all that entails. Uh, but I had a, I was about uh, two years ago or less. I was in the UK for a weekend. Not a weekend, but a weekend. A weekend. And I spent some time with a good friend named uh, David Menashe, mm-hmm. and Menashe, and he uh, dedicates today's show uh, to his father. Oh. And it, it, his father's yard site is the 17th of November, the 1st of Kislev, and his name was Mayor Ben Chacham Menashe Moshe Ben Israel. So Mayor Ben Chacham Menashe Moshe Ben Israel. Uh, he cannot, my friend David, cannot go to synagogue to pray and say Kaddish for him due to the UK lockdown. Uh, his weekly Torah portion, uh, which is uh, Mayor Ben Chacham Menashe, uh, Menashe Moshe Ben, who is also Ben Israel, his uh, Torah portion is Chaye Sarah. And one of his, fa- one, of, one, of, one of David's fondest memories is that he visited with his father at the Marat HaMachpelah, at the Tomb of the Ancestors in 1967, soon wow. after the Six Day War. I would therefore wow. like uh, and, and be honored to donate uh, in his memory to Hebron uh, and also uh, to dedicate today's show to, um, uh, to his father, to David's father. And David's a close friend of mine, and I've had the honor of spending a real good time with him. And so uh, that's, that's today's show is really dedicated to, to, to these great people. Um, but the special dedication is to Mayor Ben Chacham Menashe uh, Moshe. Ah. I think it's actually Mayor Ben Chacham 
Menashe Moshe Ben Israel. Uh, so that's that's awesome, awesome uh, stuff. Now let's get to the Torah portion, which is so um, so central to the Jewish peoples. Uh, we talk so much about Eretz Israel and and the yeah. centrality of it. Here it is. This is when it really happens, and it happens. You know, I thought to myself, we have a phrase, Eretz Yisrael niknet beisurin. The land uh-huh. of is bought through hardships. And if, if anybody's ever tried to buy real estate here, uh, you'll know <laughs> that that is, that is a truth. That is it's a, a <laughs> That's right. I even had this idea to start a real estate agency called Beisurin. I mean, some of the marketing angle on that, I think, is a little well, bit what, what happens is when you come to sign your paper, we first spit in your face. We <laughs> slap you really hard. Just so you understand. And no, and then we're like, okay, good. You got over got out of the way. Right, out of the way. Um, now we're not gonna now we're not gonna rip you off at the bank. <laughs> uh Chava writes the Reish Galuta was a diplomat, a king without a court, a politician, not a rabbinic leader. Wouldn't it be an insult to refer to a um, rabbi by that title? By the way, that's not that was not always true. That was yeah, not I always think that's true. not correct. I think that's no, well, I mean, no, it, she is she is correct that most of the Reish Kaluta in the in the Gemara are generally looked down upon for their level of their learning. That is for sure correct, but it's not always true. I mean, mm-hmm. someone like Mar Ukva, for instance, who not only was Reish Kaluta and a huge Tamil Chacham, but was actually the leader of a rebellion that created an independent Jewish state along the edge of the Euphrates for seven years. Meaning, uh-huh. it, it is, yeah, it's a great story. I can tell you some other time. Um, but, uh, She's correct that the general attitude of the Gemara toward the Reish Kaluta was not so positive. Nonetheless, it was uh, it was a position of, of tremendous kavod and didn't preclude being a Talmud Chacham. Mm-hmm. Right. What well, well, my point about about Rav Jonathan Sachs is that he was the head of the exile. He was the head of the exile, and I yeah. actually understood when he announced that he was not going to be moving to Israel. He didn't announce it that way. You know, he wanted to you know work at, at in in New York. I think at NYU, whatever it is. And I was like. That makes sense to me. I can understand that because you belong to be the head of the exile and they need you. In any case, uh, the years, let's go to the Torah portion. Let's open up the good book. I'm already looking at it because I'm looking okay, for Okay, here's right the good now. book. And it is a time for us to talk about the Torah portion of Chayesara, chapter 23, of verse 1. And it just says that, that, that Sarah is 127 years old and she died in Kiryat Arba. And Abraham came to cry for her and to eulogize her. Now, I think right from the get-go, we have to put this in context of the period that we're living in. Women were not thought of on this level. And you see right from the get-go that, that Sarah, which means my, Sarai means my princess, or Sarah, which means... Um, a, it's more expansive. I mean, like Abraham becomes the father of many people, so Sarah becomes the princess of, of many nations. Mother right. of kings, as the right. text says. And, and she, um, I was explained on the Kabbalistic level, her name also means that she uh, channeled the, the, the unbridled kindness, chesed of Avraham, because she was a Sarah, she knew how to, like today, like a minister, she knew how to yep. channel his energies in the proper direction. Yep. Uh, and, and comes Avram to, to, to eulogize her. And as she's laying there before him, this is what I was saying before, that the land of Israel is bought through hardships. The land of Israel here is going to be bought through the body of Sarah laying before Abraham and him yearning to bury her properly uh, and using that as a, as a kind of pretext 
to make sure to get that deal from the Hittites with urgency. Because you could see, even on our Torah portion, that sometimes when you don't have urgency, people try to slow you down. Uh, mm-hmm. but because there's this urgency, he gets the deal. The art of the deal. Should I call this show uh, The Art of the, the Deal? Maybe not. <laughs> I just came up with that. Is that a good name? Anyway. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of deals that do go down. I just yeah. uh, we're all distancing ourselves right now, all right? Oh, is so that it? Okay. Really all right. Call it that. All all right. Right. I just don't want to I don't want to I don't want to call anything. All right. I just don't, I don't yeah, just Okay. Anyway, not uh, making any decisions here. Right. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I noticed that we I noticed that we're just going to avoid that whole discussion, huh? Right. I, I think probably for the best. All right, let's, anyway. Let's keep going. So yeah, so so Avram is going to speak with the Hittites. He's going to he's going to negotiate with the Hittites and with these Hittites he's going to um, say to them, I want a, a place to bury my wife uh, and and let me purchase this this plot of property. Um, and they, they say to him, sure, you know, any any one of our choice plots you can have for yourself. Right. And, and then he's going to be bowing down very much a slow Middle East style negotiation where they say, no, 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 you listen to me, sir. No, no, you, you, you listen to me. And, and, and of course, thank you. And, and a lot of um, homage, a lot of obeisance. Is that the word? Um, obeisance, yeah. Obeisance, obeisance. okay. Uh, a lot of that is going to be done here. And finally, there's going to be a conversation between um, Abraham and Ephron. Now, your rabbi, Rabbi uh, Daniel Cohen. Cohen, yeah, he said to me one time, I heard him say in, one, in a class... Of the in the great uh, Sulam Yaakov Yeshiva, I heard him say uh, that Ephron is not only this Hittite, but it also also represents the earth itself because yeah, there's dusty. a fire. Right, right, then right. he's the, like, um, dusty. Dusty. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, you gotta use that. He's good. Uh, so so he's negotiating with the earth itself. Yeah, he's negotiating with the earth itself to be purchased. Um, and and finally, the 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 uh, he's the very famous, uh, you know, uh, the very famous offer that the Hittites make is take the land for free. Right. Ephron says it's for free. Yeah. And Abraham refuses this to take it depth. for free. In my eyes, this is the depth of this story because, um, and it's also part of that Middle Eastern type and like, no, 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 please yeah. take what you like, you know, bury your dead and whatever. The choices came, you know, be my guest. And, and 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 that phrase "be uh, my yeah. guest" is 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 really, in my eyes, what this is, uh, is all about. Is that the the Hittites here are are more than happy to recognize Avram as a sojourner and an important person, right? Nasi Elohim, or a prince of God among stuff. They don't they don't question that. But the, but, but what what they don't want is that there should be kinyan haaretz, right? That there should be an actual, not just acquisition of an external purchase. It's very important to remember is that that um. Avram's not just making a business deal. He's, he's embodying a historical moment. God has mm-hmm. promised him this land. One presumes at this point that word's gotten out about that, right? And, and, and what the Hittites are, try, are after is saying, this piece, that piece, you bury there and that. Just remember who's in charge. We're representatives of the largest empire in the region. They may not look at it that way, but they are. They have ba'alut, as we say, right? They are the masters of the house. And Avram's only looking to buy one little piece of land, but the, this purchase is, goes beyond a, a, an external acquisition. You know, the Gemara in Kedushin learns from here the idea that that marriage is based in Kenyan, that's based in this acquisition. 
says kicha kicha mistake Avram, right? That, that that the act of becoming married, we actually learn from Abraham's acquisition of of Machpelah. What does that mean? It means that this is not just like one spouse. It's not a possession that you like leave on the shelf and and you know you know relate to when you need it, but it's rather a, a true bond, which fundamentally changes who you are and who, who this person is and you create something new together, this is the moment in which Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael really become one. It's a, to a certain degree, it is a marriage. And, and I think the Hittites understood that. Be my guest, as long as you don't actually claim to be, you know, Balabai, master of the house. Amram says, no, 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 this is the beginning of a process in which, which, are, which, which God's Balut, as expressed through Am Yisrael, right? God's mastery is expressed through our not just possession of, but our our, um, our marriage to the land, it begins here. And of course, it's a substitute to a degree for Sarah. I mean, it's the only thing that could really now replace is the wrong word, but fill the fill Take the, the missing, place of right. Yeah, yeah, fill the missing uh, piece. Right. Uh, and I like to think of Sarah being like if if there's a if there's a soup. Uh, the, if the land can be compared to a soup, like she's the first ingredient, like Sara Imena. That's an uncomfortable first, feeling. <laughs> was the first chew in the land that is sub, subsumed into the land. Actually, I think I, I, I was very moved by by learning that Rabbi Nachman says that that when the spies said that it's that the land of Israel is an Eretz Ochel at that the land of Israel is a land that that eats its inhabitants. Like there's a positive way to look at it. It, it actually consumes you fully. You become fully integrated into the oh, land. Oh yes. And and so Sarah is this like the first. She's the first ingredient, the main ingredient, if you will. Uh, and but speaking of soup, by the way, the she's Arabs. The the Arabs on the uh, on the um, on the Palestinian Authority side of the tomb of the ancestors uh, have a soup that they serve, I think, twice a week called Sarah's soup. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and it's like a wheat, uh, like a what's that stuff called? Like a s- s- porridge? S- uh, oh, semolina. Semolina, right? And so it's made out of that. But they all say the Arabs have told me many times that if you make that same soup anywhere else, it doesn't taste so good. Like a right? They say like they say they have a saying that that Sarah's finger stirs it, uh, and I, I like that. I like. I'm, it. I'm, I like a, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I mean, you know, three the four thousand year old fingers stirring my soup and COVID having the same person stir multiple soups. Oh, that's not a good idea. Right, but, idea. but 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 it's, it's we gotta like, get a competition, man. You gotta get a, a Thursday night chillin. Mishmar. We need we need competition. We can't have the, the just on the Muslim side of the Mara soup. The Jews are going to be hungry. All right, this is your task. I Hold see on one second. Hold on one second. I heard the buzzing. Yeah, that's right. I have somebody. I have a, a Zoom from Australia that I'm supposed to do. Uh, sorry to cut you off before Australia was calling, and they got confused about the hour. They thought that our uh, Zoom was a twelve. That's the AJA. And I just wanted to throw out one thing to that that happened on that uh, on that discussion there. Uh, this this Israeli lady uh, says to me. She goes. Um, she goes. But are we going to be an apartheid state, was it with, uh, which is against Jewish values? She threw out that that statement, which is the kind of the statement Jewish I hear values. all the time. Jewish values. She threw that out. I said to her, "Let me tell you a story. I was once on a speaking tour, and within one week, I was in a New York area synagogue. This was right after the Pittsburgh shooting, or no, it was after actually after the Cow- the the Coway shooting, and and I said everybody here should have a gun." And we should have at least two guns in the shul, making sure that, that that you guys are safe. And everybody was like, "Oh my God, that's like against Jewish values." 
and it was like New York area, and everybody was just like disgusted by this idea, and it was you know ruffian and very you know Israeli, and, right? And then at the same trip, on the same trip, I was in um, San Diego, so I was like, you know, you guys should all be armed, and you know, make sure you're defending yourself. Two people in Shul should have a gun. They're like. Of course, here's, and then they pulled up their pant leg. They're, there's one gun, here's another gun, and that's Jewish values. And they were both the same kind of synagogue. What was the difference? One was living in San Diego, which is conservative, and the other one was living in New York. But the Jewish values were very much shaped by, by, by the reality that they lived. So I said to her, like, you know, what's, what's Jewish values? Is it, is it more like Japan or is it more like America? Are we an ethnic national state or an, you know, Western democracy? You're shaping your, your view of what is Jewish based on your experience, but that's, you know, that's, it's, it's very, it's very fluid. What is Jewish values? I said to her. Yes. This is a constant problem. That's a mantra of Jewish values. And, and what we all know is the less kind way to say what you're saying is that everybody thinks their own values are Jewish values. Right. That's and, right. and, and the and the reality is the Torah is as broad as the sea and as deep as the ocean. So therefore, I mean, you could find anything in there. The question really is what's going to sort of push us forward and help us to realize the Torah right. in the world. Right. But, but I think I think those kind of folks use that word Jewish values not really as a reflection of their own values, but as a cudgel also, as a cudgel a lot of times. For sure. To, like, For to sure. Like hit you over the head and say, well, you're wrong. You can't do that. Right, you can't do that in you your against Jewish values. Right, right. Okay, back to back to the story. Uh, I, we were cut off by Australia, and I really appreciate your flexibility today. Listen, if the continent thing. comes between us, I'm willing to move. That's right. The, the down under came between us. But you're a busy man. I want everybody to check out uh, your website, which is uh, rovmike.com and also jewishstory.co. Okay? That is true. And Go check it people out. Will, People will find out your will find your other classes. My brother Josh found your other classes now, and he loves them. Uh, and also your spiritual guidance work. All right, so people should check that out. Uh, and I, I like to think of you as a sponsor of the show. That's that's what I like to think of it. Oh, All right. wow! All right, we were talking about Ephron, who is a Hittite, and he and he's negotiating with Abraham. They're having a little bit of a standoff because you know they're both important kind of men, and and this is a very important moment. Abraham has his beloved wife, Sarah, uh, laid before him dead. Uh, she's passed away, and, and she's ready to be buried. And he's negotiating with the Hittites. The Hittites offer it for free. He says, nothing doing. You explained the last uh, segment that, um, that he wants as, as a gift, not a gift, but as a right of ownership in perpetuity, one that cannot be disputed. I was about to ask you a, a question that was like off script here for a second. Oh, what gives the Hittites the right of ownership of the land that you could that you should purchase it from them? Sometimes I wonder that. Like, what exactly? How exactly did you procure that kind of bona fide ownership that that I should pay? And the Hittites, by the way, are not from Canaan. They're from where Turkey is today, right? Um, so, like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, okay, it's great that Abraham showed that he wants it in perpetuity, but how is it that he gets it from the Hittites? Like, where where do they get land ownership from? Is that is that's off script a little, right? I'm no, I mean, it's a reasonable question. It's one that comes up at many points in history, and it's in general question, like, where does this notion of ownership of land come from in the first place? I mean, the the, the first answer is um, possession is nine tenths of the law, meaning the the Hittites had the power and they held the land. And Avram had a choice. God was either going to somehow take it away and give it to him. He was going to fight for it. He was going to purchase it. 
And, and I think there's an important parallel there in terms of the early Zionist movement. And even to this day, some of the work that you do in, uh, in Hebron, we choose to purchase this land, even if we believe quite deeply that the, it belongs to us and that, and that, you know, from the Romans through the um, Arab conquest, through the Crusaders and the Turks and on to the British, that everybody was basically just stealing from people that had taken it away from us. Nonetheless, asserting that kind of ownership in the world without the willingness to sort of back it with cash doesn't always get you as far as you want to go. Um, I think also it comes out in the text when, when Abraham pays his, uh, his uh, price to he gives him um, he gives him 400 shekels of kesef. Uh, literally means like they'll, they'll go to any buyer. Right, this is a, a, a they are of recognized value. Rashi says, you know, not every shekel gets accepted in every place because, of course, there's no coinage at this point in history. It's actually a weight of metal, but one can assume that there was a weight that was it was recognized. It wasn't just a lump. They were bars. They were ingots. Lomashen. I don't know. But the key is is that Avram does this purchase in a way in which no one can dispute it. Right. No one can dispute the value it was given. No one can dispute the action happened. If you look at the emphasis. Um, that's given in the Parsha, it's clear we're trying to drive home that Aaron doesn't care about the money. He doesn't feel he has to pay for it because God has promised him the land. He needs everyone around to recognize it so that right. he can move on with that recognition. Right. In many, that's right. In many ways, this is about witnesses. It's about the fact that people are, 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 are seeing this being done in such a way that it's a public recognition of Abraham's ownership of this land. Yes. Uh, certainly. Now, just a few points in the text. First thing is that Ephron uh, speaks in the ears of all the Hittites, and it says there in verse 10, Lechol ba'e shar iro, to all the people that come to the gate of his city. Now, his city could mean two things. It could mean that it's the city he lives in, so it says city, or he's the owner of the city. He's the owner, because um, the, the, the thing that I'm hinting at is, Whoever owns Maratha Machpelah is really the controller of Hebron. That's the sensitive point. That's the strategic point. That's the holy point of Hebron. Whoever controls this controls Hebron. And he says, at this point, it says that it's his city. It's Ephron's city. Um, and finally, uh, he says, uh, he says, uh, listen. Uh, oh, he says, I, I give it to you for free. Abraham says to him, I already set out the money. The money's already set out. It's, I've already like I've already parted with the money in my head. I've, I've laid it out. It is not a problem for me. Like the money's already yours. And then he says, "Listen, uh, it's between me and you. We're both wealthy men. We're both important men. That's like a subtext. What's what's four hundred silver weight between us? Supposedly, it's a it's a large sum of money. Uh, there's some dispute about it. I've heard figures upwards of about eight hundred thousand dollars today. But the point is, it's a large sum of money. Certainly at that time." Uh, for and and it's only uh, really a burial plot. However, it's interesting. Ephron says, and my mother, uh, God bless her, says that Ephron taught taught Abraham a lesson here. Abraham wanted to buy just a burial plot, but Ephron's like, Ephron's like, no, 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 no. You can't just have the burial plot. You need the field and the trees around it and the burial plot. But it's not just about death. You need also the life around it. You need a field. You need some trees. You need the stuff around it to make the life. Then at the end, you could you know bury the folks. But don't just buy just a burial plot. And they Go Yeah, that's a good one, right? Yeah, um, that's a good one. And 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 uh, they 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 weigh out the the money, and the field. 
One second, there was a verse there that I wanted to, to show you. Uh, oh, in verse 18, after the purchase is complete, it says, To Abraham, this was transferred as a purchase, to the city, in the eyes of the Hittites, all those who come into the gate of his city, Abraham's city. As in, okay, now that the now we're finished. Right, now that Martha Machpelah has been transferred, it's now the city of Abraham. It's the city of Abraham. Just that control of the Martha Machpelah means that, that actually Abraham is now uh, in control of the city. Uh, but then, the minute we're done with the... And, and then Sarah's buried there. And right. we're, we're, we're done with you know Sarah's life. The whole Torah portion is called Sarah's life. What's her life? What, what was Sarah's life? In one word, it's Yitzchak. She, she, uh, I mean, she, yeah, on some level, yeah, I hear it, right? Like, I'm, like I'm very hesitant to reduce anyone's life to one word, and certainly not what I mean, right. but I think that you're correct in the sense that the next move now, even though the parsha is called Chai Sara, right? The next focus is on bearing off Yitzhak. That was a little bit too close for comfort, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I, I, sorry about the that. camera sorry. shot, <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know, like, I have boundaries, even though we're not actually busy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Was that was, I, I? I was focusing my camera and uh, it caused a, a an uncomfortable close close up. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, but you're you're right. You can't reduce her life to that one word. But 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 the point is is that that I wanted to make is that for her and we saw also with how willing she was to be the mama bear and to push away Ishmael away from the mm -hmm. household. It's because she's concerned with her son that she knows that he is the the con continuation of the abrahamic way and when she passes away the great mission becomes it's time to get a bride a wife for yitzchak who will be on par with sarai Meno and continue her light her way in this world yes and when we had the uh, when we read last week about the binding at the end of the binding suddenly we see that abraham hears about family members that are born. Amongst them, Rivka, Rashi says that whole business about who was born is just to tell you there is a Rivka out there. A whole Maftir. Rashi says we could have skipped Maftir and just said, hey, Rivka was born. Right. It's all about, it's all about getting that Rivka. Now, I've mentioned a few times uh, on the show is that Rivka is my, one of my favorite characters in the Otanach, and that is because she is one of the most... What's the word like forthright? Like a person decisive, decisive, and and incisive. Like yeah. you know, like like as we say in Hebrew, dugri. That's a good yeah, Hebrew word yeah. of the day, dugri. Right? Is that even Hebrew? It's probably some. I don't know what it is. I don't even know. It doesn't sound like Arabic, but who, who knows? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, it, I'm gonna Google. Yeah, it could be. It could be one of uh, many languages that have. Uh, Snuck in, could be Arabic, could be Aramaic, could be Greek, uh, a little dugri, but the, the point is... Oh, it's all Greek to me. It's all Greek, and dugri means like straight to the point. And, 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 and now we have a new adventure, and, and one of the most... This is the long arm of Abraham. This is his emissary, and he's going. this is his shaliach. It's a servant or a slave. Maybe his name is Eliezer. We never find out because he doesn't have a name. He's so much a servant that he is really an emissary of Abraham. 
Abraham will put his thigh on his hand. He will, he will, he will sit on him, put his weight on him, and make him take an oath to find a, to find a proper wife uh, for for Yitzchak, and to certainly not bring Yitzchak outside of the land of Israel. And he goes to Haran, which is southern Turkey, right? Um, and to and and he is going to ask God for some guidance. I'm gonna. I, I need some guidance. The God of Abraham, like I'm. I'm on this now. Now, as a fundraiser, fundraiser for the Jewish community of Hebron, I can tell you that these kind of prayers are, prayers are very real. That, they're real. <laughs> they're very real. Sometimes you just gotta be like, look, I'm going into this meeting. I don't know. But you're the God of Abraham. <laughs> right. Just, just, yeah, because I'm not here for myself. I'm here for Abraham and not for myself. So please help me do this thing. Um, um, and, he's, and he's going to get to Haran with camels. By the way, there was some dispute about whether camels were around at that time. There was some... Uh, yeah, it's a thing you, the, that the biblical critics like to really push on, whether the camels had been domesticated. I mean, clearly they were around as animals. Right. But but were they in use? Uh, but I, I I think that I heard that at the end they did find proof of camel use at the time. Well, I mean, it's on the story, right? That's what I think. That's what that's that's the. Probably two Greeks from uh, from the local uh, dialect of Arabic. Okay, which means in Arabic, being straight talker. I mean, it means straight talker. Yeah, the do the Dugri Express. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, everybody. I want you to say degree. Okay, just say degree. Just One, and I want two, you to degree. But I want you to. I want you to, not only to say the word degree, but say it degree. Tell yeah. me the way it is, which is a big Israeli thing in Israel. A lot of times, if you're like, if you're like, you know, you're kind of hemming and hawing, people be like, "Tagili degree," or or doctor, "Tagili degree." Like, tell me what's yeah, going yeah. on. T- t- yeah. What's what's really going on here? Don't 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 play around with me. I just want the I want the straight talk. Uh, in any case, speaking of straight talk. Uh, the servant is going to bump into a, a, a lass. Lass. Uh, a lass. A young a girl. A beautiful young girl. But he says to God, you know, the, the woman who's going, the young lady who's going to, um, I'm gonna, who's going to give water to me and to my donkeys. Uh, excuse me, my, 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 my camels. That was good before uh, visionism at its finest. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you tell no, you, just made, you made them donkeys. No, 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 I didn't mean that. Yeah, not mean text that. Till today. No, what's, what's fantastic is that, that um, on one hand, this is a story of tremendous amuna, right? Evan uh, Abraham is going ahead and he knows that God's going to guide him, etc. On the other hand, you see how um, Emuna also, of course, has its limits. God, please give me a sign. You know, that the, that the girl that I meet, if I ask her for a little bit of water, she's going to say, I'll give to you and to your camels, and etc. Right? And like, but the, the kind of like a fuchal a fuch, the uh, the uh, the doubling over of that whole idea of on the one hand faith, the other hand asking for a sign, is that what what the Evid asks for is really hakrela right? He wants God to manifest because keri, right? A mikre can be a happenstance, but a mikre can also be an expression of. Um, something more fundamental, right? On some level, we always say this, there's no such thing as coincidence. Sure there is, if you refuse to see the connections that every element in the world sort of offers. But Cook is very, has a beautiful piece on how human consciousness actually is defined by its ability to put the pieces together into some meaningful whole and that, and that we deprive creation of its meaning when we 
see things as as coincidence or circumstance. Mm-hmm. So so what what uh, what Evan Avram is really asking for here is not so much that God should make it happen for him, that he should be able to see it when it does. Because of course God, he knows God's making it happen for him. He sees my household to Avram. But whether he's going to merit to see it as such or not will be a lot of what's going to depend on his, his mission is going to depend on. And of course he does see it. And that's why, by the way, I think that the story repeats itself, meaning it happens. First he asks for it to happen. Then it actually happens. And then he tells Rivka's family about what happened. And, and the classic question in the, in the sage is, what? Like there are whole fields of important Torah law which get like hints and little phrases. And here we have this prolonged repetition of the story of, of uh, Evan Abraham. And I think that the reason is what I said is because in the end of the day, there's um there's a beautiful concept here which is called halicha uh, be I learned I learned that phrase just last week from one of the rabbim in our shul that you know it's not a it's not a uh, Torah level obligation to act like Abraham. It's the reason makdim the mitzvahs. Abraham gets up early to go do the binding of Isaac, and we learn from this idea that the those who are wholehearted and doing the mitzvah like they get on it. So they're so they're all said. He brought, he brought a couple of classic sources that this isn't a uh, rabbinic obligation or, or a Torah level obligation. It's something else. It's called halicha b'derchavot. So we have an obligation to go in the ways of our ancestors. Right, and 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 people who ask me sometimes about aliyah and where the roots are in the Torah, I sometimes look at them a little bit like askance. Like I'm like, <laughs> like do, do you do you need God to talk to you directly, or did the not, did the story not do enough for you? The the, the story, the narrative in which. You just explained very well, like we're supposed to walk in the path of the story. Wasn't that quite enough, really? Wasn't enough for God to say, and I told Abraham to go to the land of Israel, and that's where I'll, you know, make you great. That's where, you know, your name will be known. Like, it's like, it's just see the story and live, live, live life within that story. And you'll know where to go in yeah. that sense. But in any case, uh, in any case, uh, the servant asks for a very specific sign. The rabbi's a little bit... Uh, you know, they say no, no, no. That's not exactly the way. You can't, you can't be hemming God into your signs exactly. Specific signs, right? Specific signs. But my good friend Alex Trayman ha- has a a. Um, he's one of the only guys that I know that has a system of decision making, and he says you push on all doors equally until whatever. When you have many de- like the decisions to make between a few different things, push on all doors equally until they go down to two. And then still push on him equally, but make for yourself a sign. Say, I'll ask him for this. If they agree, that's the job for me. So he's like, in, in a sense, like sometimes that's the Alex Trayman method. I'm not saying it's, it's, uh, it works for him. It's worked for me in the past also. But like sometimes you can put a certain thing like you're like, okay, I've done all my work, but now I need you to, to help me, Lord. I need, I need you to help me understand where to go in this path. Um, and that's that's what he does. And the minute he he didn't even finish speaking, this was an interesting part of the sign. He didn't finish. He he, he just finished He's the words. Expressing what he wanted, right? Right. And it says that really two times. <coughs> he just had finished speaking. Here comes Rivka. She was born to Betuel ben Milka. Uh, Betuel, the son of Milka, Eshet Nachor, the wife of Nachor, Achi Avraham, the brother of Abraham, Ukada al Shichma, a very biblical image. Her, that's right. Yeah, she is. She, that's right. She has got the porcelain jar on her shoulder. Uh, she is very beautiful. Betula, 
she is a virgin, no man had known her, she came down to the to the um to spring. the spring to the water hole she she filled up her jar and she came up just a very biblical language very biblical image very land of israel image a very very like uh, ancient times image uh in any case she she um waters his um his camels she gives water to him and to his camels and he is still shocked uh, but finally, um, now this is interesting. He gives her, he thinks about it for a little bit, then he gives her these jewelry pieces, including the old nose ring, a classic nose ring. I don't know why people don't wear them today. I told oh, my they wife, do. I, yeah, but I, but like, yeah, I, told, I told my <laughs> Maybe wife. Maybe that's people you hang out with. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and then he asks, who are you? And then he figures out that she's part of the, part of the Abrahamic family. In his retelling of the tale, he'll say, I asked her what sure, family right. she was from, and then I gave her the rings. He was a bit more circumspect, a little bit more rational in his retelling of the tale, right? First I asked who who, who exactly uh, you are, then I was like, okay, now it all adds up. But in the r- original story, it was a little bit more, shall we say, how would you say? Well, it's funny because, I, I mean, as much as I think what you're saying is true that um, he, he wanted to present the story post-facto in a, in a rational light, I think also the... The switch in the the language and the order here is indicative of the state of being in which he found himself. Mm-hmm. Meaning, meaning there was a there was a level of certainty he was experiencing that his rational mind had not caught up to, because he was letting God take over, and so therefore the instant response of giving the jewelry before his mind is even caught up to ask, "Well, wait a minute, perhaps I should clarify that this is it." No, because he had this sense of certainty, and right. you know, it's it's a it's a it's a precious sense in decision making. I'm, I'm doing some work around this, both for my counseling right now, and also because um, I'm working on some episodes around the uh, the decision making process and what to do with the conquered lands in 1967. And and you know, there's something you find when people speak about Ben Gurion. They say he had a tremendous capacity to just make decisions, right? Decisions that defied. All the logical analysis around him, and the classic, of course, was to to uh, actually declare independence. But not just that; like his his decision, by the way, to on one hand declare independence on the basis of the partition plan, on the other hand to reject the map of the partition plan as binding and, and allow the fortunes of war to set the borders of Israel. I mean, he had this capacity to allow events to overtake him, and yet still maintain the agency of decision making. Instead of having to stay up ahead and like never really knowing, so this is what uh, what uh, Evan Avram is experiencing this moment. Events have overtaken him. God's will is larger, and so he acts. He gives her these, you know, sort of uh, wristbands and the nose ring and the what have you. And then afterwards, he realizes. So, but then when he tells the story, he probably actually experienced it when he retells the story. Of course, I must have asked her first. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have given her. But but in that moment, he was completely overwhelmed. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nothing really. Okay. So you're so you, the difference is that you're saying that 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 it it, it it wasn't being he wasn't presenting in more circumspect he actually was uh, it, in a completely he, different he actually, state of mind, right? He actually thought thought it back. He actually rethought it the way the way it, events happened. He remembered them differently because at the time he was just totally going with it. Yep. Okay, I, I like that. I like that very much. And you know, it's interesting because we're going to see another emotional reaction coming up soon. When Rivka sees from a distance Yitzchak, okay, Rivka, yeah. in a sense, Rivka is the calm and collected one 
vis-a-vis the servant who's you're saying acting emotionally God's God's will is overtaking she is going to be put into the position that she would have been had Yitzchak approached her directly but now they're coming on these camels from Haran to Hebron and and there's Yitzchak she sees him from a different distance and she's bang wowed by him or something happens either she knocked off, off the, the camel. camel she's knocked off the camel she comes off the camel in order to walk I, I you know maybe not to seem overly assuming but whatever it is she is you know the torah definitely throws in there a word that makes you think that somehow something happened to her when she saw him from a distance sure. so the, the other thing that's going to happen here is gonna, we're going to meet a character who's going to be a major character for the jewish people down the line and that's laban or lavan okay uh, um, a major character who is going to kind of give grief to Yaakov, but on the other hand, we learn a lot of halachot, a lot of laws from from Levan, uh, and yet we kind of uh, besmirch his name when we say, you know, he wanted to try to destroy everything. We say that at the Seder night uh, every every year, and so Levan is is this he is the uh, kind of conniving uh, brother of Rivka. And also later on going to be the father of Leah and Rachel. We meet him now for the first time. There's now like a satellite of the Abrahamic family in Haran. And they're going to play an important role in the next, these, in these two generations. Yeah, this is uh, Levan's uh, sort of cameo appearance here. But um, I mean, it's, it, it is interesting in the sense that we often forget Levan and his family, you know, especially as you're... Um, as you're pointing out that on Saturday night, you know, Levan bikesh la kol at the cold, right? There, Levan wanted to uproot everything, and he's really sort of painted as this absolute enemy. When the reality is, is he's Yaakov's father-in-law. He's the father of Rachel and Leah. Meaning, he has a certain status in our ancestry, and I think that that comes to tell us is that the the sort of real conflicts are the family conflicts, right? And, and we know this from Sefer Breshit. Well, he's and he's also a contra. He's also contra. Uh, if if Ephron is the contra to Abraham in in Hebron with the purchase, there's Rivka, this holy and beautiful saintly kind of character, and then there's Lavan. He's he's conniving. He's tricky. He's not what it seem what he seems he is. Um, um, and at the same time, he's he's paired with Rivka. So here he is. He's the brother of Rivka. Later on, Yaakov is going to learn from him also how to be. And we know Yaakov is a man of truth, but also. A man who's, as we say in England, clever. Okay, there's a there's a cleverness to him. He's gonna learn a thing or two. Not so degree uh, for most of his life. Right. He's gonna learn a thing or two from uh, from this this Levan. There's something about being with Levan which um, sharpens your talents, which gets you to to know how to you know still be righteous, but how to play in this world. Um, it's not easy to deal with him because he's tricky. But if you but if you can master it, you really are part of uh, this this world. But at the end, uh, when it was time to go, uh, the the servant is uh, is um, is ready to go, and they say, actually, let her hang out for another ten months or a year. Let her hang out for a little bit. The 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 words are actually yamim or asor, which means days or ten. But I think it's understood biblically that it means either 10 months or a year. Let her hang out. She's betrothed. And a betrothed girl doesn't like run, leave her family. And she's a young girl. How could she leave her family? Let, let her stay a little bit. Says the servant, don't um, delay me. God is making my, uh, my success 
is pacing my success. He's succeeded. He's helping me succeed. It's liach, but the biblical word of the word, the word matzliach, letzliach, or he tzliach in this case is is quick succession of success. He's succeeding my way. Send me, and I shall go. Um, and uh, he, he he says to them, um, "Where's the word I was looking for uh, about left and or right? Where is it?" Um, uh, I think that's earlier, isn't it? Ah, uh, yes, that's right. That's right. Earlier, he had said, "Like, tell me right now, are are you with yeah, me here?" Yeah, we are, is this happening or not? Is this happening or not? If not, I will go to other places. I'll go north. I'll go south. But like, you know, don't mess with me. And here, they're a little bit yeah, messing line with him. Forty nine. Right, and he says to them, uh, "Look, you can't delay me. I'm, I'm taking. I'm, I want to take this girl." And they say, "Well, let us ask the girl." And here we are, the second time that we actually bring Rivka. And this is very interesting. They're asking this girl, this, 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 this young girl, whether she's willing to leave the household basically forever. Yeah, and go with this strange man to meet another man to get married to him. And she just says one word. I love it. Her whole answer is, Elech, I'm going. I'm out. See ya. I'm out of here. I'm well, one imagines her. with love and your brother, you'd probably be more than happy to get out of the house. But Yes, but still, still big. It's big. You're going. No, it's big. And, that, and, and the Torah records her one word, Elech. And this is, again, this Rivka with a super decisive uh, person uh, who can feel God's providence. And she... Again, I'm I'm not trying to give anybody a hard time, but for the people who ask me, like, should I make Aliyah? Should I live in Israel? I just say to them, just look at Rivka. She's just like, she's like, I see the call of God. Here it is. I'm out of here. Let's go. I'm, uh, let's go. It's go. It's go time. Yeah. It's just go time. And she comes. Uh, she comes with the servant, and in a sense, she actually leads the servant. And she comes, uh, and she sees she sees Yitzchak from a distance, and Yitzchak is doing what. He's a beautiful verse. There's a lot of this. Tor- this Torah portion has these, I would say, romantic type verses, including uh, 63. Yitzchak came out to uh, meditate in the field. Yeah, I mean, that siach is, is sort of very evocative because the second, the second chapter of Breshit of, uh, of Genesis has a very similar line in this... Um, Hang on, I'll, I'll, I shall read it to you rather than, God forbid, misquoting a verse of the Torah. Just getting there. Here it is. Um, it's chapter 2, line 5. Right? There was not yet any sort of shrub on the field. Siach likely means something which, which is sach, it floats up. Um, and so like, that's why a sicha, a conversation, emerges from between two people. A siach stands up from the ground and... and uh, Rasuach and your translation of meditation bears a number of the the mafarshim because of course you're moving up in consciousness. Um, but, but the reason I pointed out here is that term term the kol term yeah could be read as there was no, not any shrub in the field, but you could also say there was not yet any conversation because a conversation requires two equals. It, it requires a real meeting of minds and souls, and so therefore. Yitzchak went out into the field, he was looking basically for the depth of conversation that creation could offer him, and lo and behold, who presents herself in that very moment, of course, this whole story is, is it's all from God, but he becomes Rivka, and they become this archetype 
in Jewish tradition of the of the um, married couple, right? Yitzchak is the only one of the Chavot who married, who has only one. I mean, he mar- I mean, Avram didn't marry. Well, he did after, you know. But you know, he only has one partner. It's one partner, and she's truly a partner, as we see in that great test of Yitzchak's life when he was trying to figure out whom to bless. We'll speak about it, you know, in Parsha Toldot. Um, that that it's really Rivka's decisiveness that saves him from a potential um, wrong decision, and and he, and he knows it because in the end he comes back together with her and, and supports it. So there's a there's a powerful partnership which really begins here, and it's a it's a conversation. And and so a lot of times I'm trying to promote Hebron as the city of love, and uh, as I had a guy from Virginia yesterday, I was touring a group of uh, Leva Torah. And I, there was a guy from Virginia. I said, "What's the tagline for Virginia?" He's like, "He said Virginia is for lovers." For lovers, right? So I said, "Exactly, that's Hebron." Hebron Are you not impressed that I knew that? That is good. That is good. That is good. And here's one of the most romantic verses in the whole Torah. Is that fair to say? In the in the five books of Moses, this is probably the most romantic verse. True, although in all honesty, there aren't a whole lot of competitors. Okay, <laughs> well, it makes it even more so special. It says, verse Samach uh, Zayin. 67, He brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. He took Rivka. She became to him for a wife. And he loved her. And he was, Yitzchak was consoled after his mother. Dang! That is just amazing! Such a beautiful verse. And, and um, you know, you, you know, you said something before about the, the, the this couple, but if you if you take together the word the field and and that we talked about siach and this, this as you said they're like a couple that never breaks. You think of Adam and Eve. You think of Adam and Eve, and according to our sources, uh, the tomb of the ancestors is the entrance to the Garden of Eden. There's something Garden of Edenish uh, about Isaac and Rebecca together. And uh, the the path moves forward. We'll learn in the next Torah portion that yet again there's a challenge that there is no uh, there's no continuation, there's no fertility, there's no fruit of the womb, and the 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 effort to to pray to God uh, to become pregnant and to have the next generation. But now we're just going to that the story stops. The story stops at that romantic end. Uh, Abraham marries. He lost Sarah in the beginning of the Torah portion. He marries Keturah. He has other children. Uh, according to the Kabbalah, Gerim uh, converts come from this uh, Abrahamic union uh, with somebody that's not Sarah, and yet these people want to come back into the Jewish fold. But in any case, he passes away, and it says that he passed away, he passed away, he died, Abraham in a ripe old age, old and satisfied. That's a nice word, right? Isn't that, isn't that a nice way to, to, to have a we should, remark? We should bear it. We I mean, bear it. right? Like the remark about death is severe, satiated. Yeah. I did I did what I was supposed to do in life. Um, what could be the greater joy? Right. Viasef Elamav, he was gathered onto his people. Different explanations what that means. Um, but in any case, and who buried him? Isaac and Ishmael, his sons. Banav, it says his sons. El Marata Machpelah to the tomb of the Machpelah, as de Ephron to the field of Ephron, the son of Tzohar, Hachiti the Hittite, Asher al Pnei Mamre, and the place is al Pnei Mamre, which is today, by the way, a mountain in Hebron called Jabel Nimra. It's still there today. 
and then finally, uh, we see that uh, we see the life of Ishmael. Like Ishmael is now going to the Torah, will give him the respect of telling you his lineage, and then kind of okay, but 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 put him to the side. And there's a word there which is not a very pleasant word, which is nafal. nafal. On the face of all of his brothers, he fell. The explanation generally is that since Abraham was gone, he didn't have that good influence, and he fell. He he did not hold up the way that he could have, should have held up. Um, as he did when Abraham was around. Yeah, and and uh, you know Ishmael's story doesn't disappear. It's just not what the Torah is focused on. I mean, it's important to remember that, that the Torah doesn't purport to be the story of everything. It's following uh, sort of a, a, a very specific line, which is meant to connect to Shemayim Ba'aretz, and uh, and Yitzchak is carrying that blessing. He's carrying that task. And it will be his generations that we'll see going forward in Parshat Toldot. Rav Mike, we have here a message from Chaim Davis, a Davids. He was a good friend of us, friend of ours. And he says, Yishai, I've got some consolation Chai Sarah herring for you. Uh, I may indeed need it because I may be locked out of Hebron myself for Chai Sarah. Well, if, if Chaim's listening, I just made an order. God willing, it'll make sense what I wrote there. If not, you can be touched. Okay. Okay. So, so Chaim, what, is, what does he bring to your house? Oh, Fresh I, fish? I mean, I, uh, I mean, herring, yeah. It's a, the Segula herring is great. The Kitora. That's right. I want to try the, the smoky bourbon maple herring. <laughs> okay. That sounds really good. And what's his what's his uh, business called? Prohibition Pickles, man. You got to get on top of the Pickle King. He's got he's building a, uh, a spot where people can be able to sit and enjoy hot pastrami and pickles and, and herring and all the good things of life over in uh, Sona Gush. If I'm not mistaken, it's right next to Rami Levy. It's gonna be. I might have to go there today. I might have to go there today if it's right. Well, no, it's not it's open. It's not open yet. Oh, but but, right. but he does. He does, he's uh, making a, making the stuff. You can pick it up. He also does deliveries. I just salivated, which is a problem for broadcasting. Uh, <laughs> L- Lorraine, Lorraine says shalom from Maryland, USA. Thank you for teaching and inspiring. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you very much. And I also wanted to uh, remind everybody that today's show is sponsored. Uh, by David Menashe in in the memory of his father, Mayor Ben Chacham Menashe Moshe Ben Israel. That's a lot of cool names together. Uh, and this year, uh, my good friend David from the UK cannot say Kaddish for his father. <clears throat> I told him I would say it here in the land of Israel for him. Uh, and uh, he remembers how um, the, his father's Torah portion was Chayesara, and he remembers that in 1967 he went with his father so right cool. after the Six Day War. That's amazing. By the way, I have another email here um, for both of us. Ooh, um, mail. That's right. Hold on one second. One second. Let me make sure that I have it uh, correct. Just one second. Rabbi Mike, I had it prepared, but I see now that I a little bit uh, missed something that is important for us to mention. And that is that I got an email from, uh, that's right, that's right, here it is, I got it, from Mordechai, from Mordechai, that's right, Mordechai writes uh, to both of us, he writes, Shalom Yishai, my wife and I, uh, my wife and I love your Yishai Fleischer show, especially with Rav Mike Foyer. <laughs> we just sent some small tzedakah to get uh, uh, to our site, YishaiFleischer.com, to honor the first yurt site of my dear mother-in-law, Dimanti Bat Eliyahu Zal, who was Nifter Erev Shabbos Parshal Chai Sarah exactly one year ago, she was a hundred and two years old. Wow! And lived in Tel Aviv. 
That is an amazing thing. So may her neshama have an aliyah. Let's say her name again. Diamanti Bat Eliyahu Zal, 102 years old, died one year ago uh, this week, this week, this Chai Sarah. He also, Mordechai sent me a gorgeous artwork picture uh, of his artwork of the two spies walking with grapes uh, from the the land of Israel to the camp of Israel with a Sefer Torah and a shofar. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous picture. Really something else. Fantastic. So really, there are great people out there, and we really want to remember uh, all of your uh, lovely family members that uh, that maybe are not with us anymore physically, but are still with us spiritually. And certainly, what an honor it is to dedicate <clears throat> the show to their memory, and to also, as we said, to Rav David Feinstein and uh, Sir Rabbi Rabbi Sir Lord. Jonathan Sachs, Lord. Excuse me, that's right, Lord. Where's the is the Sir also there or not? No, I think Lord's a step up from Sir. Oh gosh. That's a that's a that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of power, uh, and Rev Mike, I want to thank you so much for showing up, and th- sorry for that break with Australia. I appreciate your flexibility, and I want to have everybody check out uh, RevMike.com and JewishStory.co. Okay, right, be in touch. Be in touch. Rev Mike has got a lot of great stuff uh, to connect you to with with four. four that's right. And um, I just want to wish you a great, uh, a great Shabbat Shalom, and may we also feel that love. May we feel that love. If you think about it, there's a love, there's a lot of love in this parsha. There's a lot of love in this parsha. There's a love of of Abraham to Sarah, but then Abraham to the land of Israel, then right. Abraham to Esav. Excuse me, to Yitzchak. To Yitzchak. Okay, yeah, I don't know why I said that. To Yitzchak, I was thinking about Maratz Machpelah and the head rolling. In. Forget that. So the love of uh, of Abraham to Yitzchak. The love of the servant to Abraham and wanting to fulfill his mission is shlichut. Yeah. The love of of um, of Yitzchak and Rivka, the faith of Rivka, and then and then the love of Yitzchak and Rivka, the love of Yitzchak and Yishmael to come together to honor their joint father. Yeah, their so shared father. And then, uh, and and also, I think that it's fair to say the love of Avraham to Yitzchak, as we said, but also the love of Avraham to Ishmael. And uh, there's a, and there's a, there's a lot. It's a Torah portion of love. It really is a Torah portion of love, and it makes sense that we have that that uh, love, that that beautiful pasuk. And may we feel that love. Did I mention also the love to the land of Israel? I did. May we feel that that connection to Hashem to each other. That we should complete each other and give each other, you know, that sense of uh, of connectivity to the things that we love, um, and uh, lots of love to you, Rav Mike. Much lots love. Of blessings. And may, may may our children feel that love that we feel towards them feel right back to us uh, as well. We're, we're, they're not commanded to love us, but to honor us, and we love them so much, and we we want them to go in in the pathways of the forefathers and mothers, and we work so hard to to train them in that direction. And may maybe that love be felt and reciprocated and indeed go in that path. Amen. Rav Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. God bless you, Rav Mike. And I just want to finish off the show, uh, this part of the show anyway, by just uh, thanking everybody. And also, um, look at this. We got, uh, we got other people. We got Birkat Tovlev Shalem Toda. Okay. And we got also Chaya who writes Shabbat Shalom. <clears throat> Shabbat Shalom to all of you. And don't forget to check out some of our sponsors. We have some great sponsors of our show, uh, including hebronfund.org. This is the week 
to check out hebronfund.org and to throw in your donation uh, to sponsor the Jewish community of Hebron and Shabbat Chayisara. This is the time to do it. Uh, check out uh, Salves of Jerusalem and get some natural goodness from the Holy Land. I use their product. And Salves of Jerusalem, if you just put in uh, put in coupon code Yishai, you will get 10% off. That's really awesome. So that's Salves of Jerusalem. And our very good friends at blessedbyisrael.com, you can get all kinds of stuff from the land of Israel, including olive oil and other things uh, from the land of Israel, just by going to blessedbyisrael.com. Uh, coupon code Yishai will get you 12% off. Uh, the good folks at Trelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, have the biblical blue, which is back. And you can order it and wear it, and you will feel so incredibly proud to be part of it. So I really want you to check that out. And our good friends at JewishPress.com, putting out great news and put and promoting the Yishai Fleischer Show and other great shows every week. Our good friends at JewishPress.com, great Jewish and Israel news. And finally... Come on, don't forget, you know, last but not least, uh, EshaiFleischer.com. Check out our website, support and donate and help the show be uh, sent out to the world uh, free and, and, and unlimited. Like, let's, let's break out and open it up to the world. So I want to thank you so much for being with me wherever you are. Also, write me an email. I have some emails that I'm going to read in the, in the Malka segment. Uh, thank you so much for writing to me, Yishai at Yishaifleisher.com or Yishai at the Land of Israel.com. The Land of Israel Network is one of our greatest sponsors, uh, created by Ari Bramwitz and Jeremy Gimpel, thelandofisrael.com, with many other great shows. Uh, and of course, our greatest sponsor of them all is the God of Israel, who has given us uh, a renewed, or embodied, I was going to say renewed, renewed life. It's not really true because the Jewish people have, are people of Netzach, uh, but has given us the state of Israel and the land of Israel back in our lifetime. Thank you, God of Israel, for bringing your presence back to Zion, and thank you so much for helping us just be a part of it just a little bit. Finally, thank you to Moshe Herman, Ben Bresky, and Tabitha for getting the show out. Stay tuned to this channel for many good things, and lots of love from the land of Israel, the land of blessings, and Shalom. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. Thank you so much, Rev. Mike Foyer, for that excellent... Uh, an interesting uh, 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 exposition of Chaye Sarah. And now uh, I wanted you to hear from uh, uh, Amir Avivi, who's a brigadier general that I was standing right next to and interviewing at the foot of the Tomb of the Ancestors in Hebron, city of Abraham. Here's our discussion about what real Israeli security is all about. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. And if you heard my debate with Hen Mazig, you saw that one of the things that Hen kept focusing on is this organization of Israeli generals. Uh, I think it's called Generals for Israel Security. And he kept saying there's 300 generals and heads of a Mossad who are for two-state solution. And he kept pushing that over and over again. When I challenged him on the logical reasons why it's problematic, he just kept going back to that organization. And at some point I said, you know, there is a counter-organization, which is maybe even bigger. And it's got about 1,400 at the time. Now I find out it's 1,500 officers and generals who do not have a two-state solution a priori as their you know, solution for the, Israel, uh, for the Israel-Palestinian-Israel-Arab conflict, but rather are concerned with Israel's security. 
and certainly are not uh, just saying the only thing to do is to is to give up land. And there's another organization uh, and has a different perspective, which is they're running counter to that organization. And that's just the way it is. That's democracy. That's that's a different voice. Don't tell me there's only one voice that says that there's only one thing to do. And I, I was mentioning the organization. It's called the Bitchonistim. Which is also protectors of Israel. Protectors of Israel, and that other voice that you hear uh, is Brigadier General uh, in retirement and reserves, um, Amir Avivi. Amir Avivi, what a great name! Uh, Amir Avivi uh, is the the CEO and the founder of this organization, and he happens to be standing next to me today here at the tomb of the fathers and mothers, the tomb of the ancestors here in Hebron, city of Abraham. Amir, thank you so much, Brigadier General Amir. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, just for a few minutes here, I just uh, that that conversation is a recurring theme. There's like there's only one way. There's only one way to to, to do Israel security, and those guys know. They know capital K N O. They know L W. They know what the what the truth is. But your organization is full of people who think differently. Tell me about why you started this organization and how you're doing. Well, our main concern is Israel security and the, the ability of Israel to thrive in the long term. And we're talking about the very long term. We think that the nation that has been around for 4,000 years should be able to think at least a 1,000 years ahead <laughs> about its future and make sure that uh, we don't have another situation where we're kicked out of our uh, country. It happened twice. We spent 2,000 years in exile, and, and it should be the last time. And in order to, to make sure that it's the last time and we'll prosper here... We must take deep concern about our security and think what are these security needs that will ensure our survivability for the long term. And I think that the problem with uh, the other organization that uh, they don't start from the point of security. They want peace. They think that peace is the only way to achieve security. Some paper you sign, you know, we had peace with Iran, we had peace with Turkey and we see how this turned out. So we don't trust anybody else. We trust only the IDF. We trust ourselves. And I think that one of the basic things in Zionism, when we came back to Israel, is making sure that we are responsible for our own security with our security forces and not dependent on anybody else as they wish uh, the situation to be. So this is what we are concerned. This is what we are talking about. And we think that once you draw these clear red lines what are the Israeli needs, then from this point you can talk about peace agreements and, and uh, solutions and there are a variety of solutions. The solutions they push is not the only one, not at all. And so we talk about other solutions but we are not committed to any specific solution, we are committed to Israel security. That's, uh, that's, that's really um, so important because as I was telling you, it's not just an intellectual argument. It's a it's a it's a battering ram. They're using it. They're using those three hundred generals on the other side to strike at us, to strike at us, and to shut down conversation about what goods what's good for Israel security. So when did you start the organization? Like what what was the what was the theory behind starting it? Was it was it them that turned you on to uh, making a, a new the Bitchonistim? By the way, what's the website? The website is thebitchonistim.com, a bitchonistim without c, with h dot com. Beat Honistim. Beat Honistim, right. Right. Which, by the way, is, uh, just, to, just so people know, it's a term in Israel means security-minded folks. Security-minded folks. And it's a great name. A Beat Honist is like a Likud Knesset member who's more security conscious. All right, so tell me about the founding of the organization. So what got me to start this organization is the understanding that the ideas these generals are pushing, 
they uh, threaten Israel existentially. If their ideas actually come forward, Israel won't exist in the long term. And, and I'm saying it 100%. There is no chance of survivability for the Jewish people uh, if we push forward their ideas. So I felt there was a need for a clear voice that explains to the general public and to the policymakers what are the real security needs of Israel and uh, not trying to, you know, find solutions and uh, try to convince people that retreating to indefensible lines, this is a solution because you signed some, some paper with, uh, with the Arabs. So actually, you know, we started the organization in January. And at that time, uh, President Trump started pushing forward his plan, talking about uh, applying sovereignty in the Jordan Valley and in the Jewish towns in Judean Samaria. And this is, in our point of view, critical for Israel's security. And so we started talking about uh, the importance of this idea, and it had a lot of traction. And within a few months, we, we grew to more than a thousand, you know, 1,500 uh, officers within uh, eight months. It's, it's big and, it's, and we are growing very, very fast. And there is a lot of traction among, among the Israeli public, policymakers, organizations around the world. Everybody wants to hear what we have to say. Sure they do. Uh, sure they do. Because it never made sense to so many people uh, why security people would be anti-security. And, and you get that sense, and, and yet, yet there's always a feeling in the Israeli government and Israeli army and Israeli security services that only the, how should we call it, left, the two-state solution perspective, that's the only one that moves up somehow in the ranks. But that's not really true. There are a lot of uh, people of the nationalist sort that do move up in the ranks. You have some top generals in your organization? Oh, yeah, definitely. We have uh, more than 30 generals. And, and, and I, I would say that another difference is that we are a younger generation. Mm -hmm. And these guys, they're like, 25, 30 years older than us. Uh -huh. They fought in the Yom Kippur War. Not really connected to the reality we, we are dealing with uh, now. Mm. We, want, we were the ones who had to deal with the, what happened after Oslo. All these uh, huge terror attacks all over Israel. And we, we dealt with it. We fought the Palestinian terrorism. We are more uh, connected to what's going on now. I retired only three years ago. So I, I know very well, you know, what's going on on the ground. And, and so most of the generals and officers who joined the Bitcoinist team. So we, the younger generation, see things differently. And we're not tired. We're not a generation that is afraid to continue to fight for, uh, for uh, the, the people of Israel, for the Jewish people, for the state of Israel. And we're not afraid to say to our children that one day they will have to defend this uh, country. We understand that... Uh, it's a mission in the long term. This language that you're using that you're not tired is, of course, very reminiscent of the language that I think it was Olmert, who, Prime Minister Olmert at the time, who said, we're tired of wars, we're tired of fighting, we're tired of this stuff, we don't want to see uh, our children armed and stuff like that. And I heard in your, in your words right now exactly the opposite, that we're not tired, and if we have to take up arms, we'll continue to do that. That's part of our heritage as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, yes, listen, of course we want peace, you know, and we're so happy about the peace agreements that they were signed now. But we understand that what enables Israel to sign peace agreements, it's Israel's strength. The more stronger we are, the more there is a chance that the, the Arabs will say, OK, we cannot win against them. Let's join them and let's uh, make peace agreement. The idea that you'll get weaker and weaker and people will want to do business with you, 
it's a completely it doesn't make any sense when you talk about international relations especially it doesn't make sense in the Middle East in the Middle East you need to be strong and then they take you seriously well they took Abraham seriously who was on the one hand uh, a man who had his tent open to all four sides but when they took his nephew Lot hostage he fought them he fought them uh, with mercilessly uh, until utter victory defeat of the enemy and victory uh, and so the Bitchonistim uh, are a group of people that want to ensure Israel's security and through that strength will come a time of peace uh, Amir Avivi I want to thank you so much I want everybody to check out Bitchonistim Bitchonistim.co.il right? C-O-I-L or .com for the English speaking uh, audience Bithonistim.com, very good for our folks. Uh, and I want to wish you a lot of success and thank you so much for joining me here to tomb the fathers and mothers, the ancestors, on the eve of Parshat Chaye Sarah, where we read about Abraham's first purchase in the land of Israel. So thank you very much. And one important thing about national security national security derives from the national aspirations, from Zionism, from Judaism. And this is why it's so important to visit our fathers, our forefathers and mothers, and be connected to our Jewish heritage. This is a huge part of our strengths as a nation. All right, folks, thank you to uh, Amir Avivi, Brigadier General, awesome guy. And now here is my talk with AJA, the Australian Jewish Association, uh, which is an amazing organization of uh, strong Jews and lovers of Israel down under who are fighting for Israel's rights and a connectivity between Australia and Israel. So here's my talk with the AJA uh, that happened just yesterday. Welcome to everybody as usual. Special welcome to anybody that's new to our Zoom sessions. Um, if you are, my name is Alan Friedman. I'm Vice President of the Australian Jewish Association and I will be the MC for this evening. Um, also visible on your screens, as you will have seen, are David Adler, the President of the AJA, and also um, Yishai Fleischer, good evening to you. Thank you very much, Alan, and thank you, David. And it's fun to be with, uh, with Australia. I think that welcoming me to Australia is, is a little <laughs> bit of an exaggeration. Uh, well, I always tell people, that, I tell people that Australia is one of the places that a, a, a person should try to visit in their life. It's, it's such a beautiful and, and important place to kind of just see God's, uh, God's, God's creativity, God's beauty. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I am in the land of Israel, which I'm very happy to be in right now, <laughs> but I'm certainly not in Australia. I'm just with you no. on Zoom. But thank God for this technology, and it's great to be with you guys. Yeah, it works well. Yeshai, the U.S. election has been and gone, and it's probably fair to say that there, we, we don't know what's going on, and there could be some changes um, made. Now, if we, if we do uh, end up with a Biden government, um, can, can we, I mean, I imagine we'll be able to see, well, there will be some changes in, in its approach towards Israel, and its conflict with the Palestinian Arabs and, and the impact of, of Iran in the Middle East. So um, how do you read what's been happening in the US? How do you see the next four years unfolding for uh, Judea and Samaria under a Biden-Harris administration, if that's indeed what we get? Okay, so uh, thanks again, Alan. Uh, great question uh, about the future of, of the United States. Let's just say what we all know, which is, Nobody can understand the future of the United States anymore. And in general, politics has become a very um, unpredictable game, more than in the past, I think, more than in the past. Maybe it's just the way of social media. Maybe it's, it's the distrust in, on, uh, that, that politicians have garnered. Uh, it's very hard to tell. Here in Israel, for example, we had three elections, one after the other, and then a government that is basically not working well. And again, on the radio, everybody's talking about Israeli elections. So... 
it's very hard to predict now. It's hard to predict the voter and it's hard to predict the political players. In the United States, you know better than I do. I know you guys watch uh, what's going on in, in the United States very closely. And so I don't have a lot of comments on what's going to be. Uh, but in American football, uh, you have uh, a team that's in American football, when, when they're on the field, there's an offensive team. And then when the ball goes to the other side, you go to defense and a different team comes on board. All I mean to say is sometimes you play offense, sometimes you play defense. It's like a different modality. It's not like soccer where you just switch mental mode and just become defense. It's like sometimes there's a whole different team that, that goes there to hold the line. And probably under a, a Biden-Harris administration, we're just going to have to switch into a defensive mode. I mean, the guess is, is really quite simple. A Biden administration is like an Obama-Biden administration. That's not so if people say to me, people say to me, they're like, uh, Biden's not Obama. I go, I think he is Obama because he was the Obama Biden administration. So he was the vice president for that administration. He is in the same mindset. Uh, moreover, he, he Biden, when he came to town to Israel, he made a um, uh, he made last time he came to town, he made sure to berate the prime minister for building in, in, in a normative part of Jerusalem. And we, we know what, uh, what Biden could be about, but what's going to be in America and who's really going to win that election? I really don't know. And in fact, I'm a little bit tired of thinking about it. I'm a little bit tired of thinking about it because my business is to help build the Jewish state uh, and, uh, and help uh, people come to the consciousness of the centrality of Israel in our time. And that's what I'm about. I'm not about uh, America. Uh, that being said, let's just take a second and answer your question a little bit more tightly, a little bit more specifically. Uh, the, the, the Trump administration had tremendous successes. I'm guessing that people that are right now at this, uh, on this session are pro-Israel people for the most part. Now, we remember as pro-Israel people that we used to live with tons of kind of well-known lies public lies. I'll give you an example. The UN was an anti-Semitic body and we all knew it. We all lived with it. We all lived with our lies constantly. And we saw them uh, regularly condemn us, call us an occupier, tell us that we don't have any rights in Jerusalem and, or in Hebron, etc. We lived with that. Suddenly, and, and we were used to that. We were just like, that's, say la vie, right? Right, Alan? You just say, well, that's, that's just the you know, UN. That's just the way it is. Suddenly, there came an administration which said, wait a minute. We have to put a stop to this international sanctioned anti-Semitism. And they went at the UN, went straight at them. Now, personally, I was involved with a subset of the UN called UNESCO. Now, UNESCO recognizes World Heritage Sites. And what they did was that they decided that the Tomb of the Ancestors in Hebron was actually a Palestinian World Heritage Site under threat from Israel. So this 2,000-year-old Jewish building on top of tombs that are 3,800 years old Jewish tombs was now a Palestinian site. So this was absurd. But the fight that I started in Hebron ended up with the Trump administration leaving UNESCO on the grounds that this was anti-Semitism against Israel and against Hebron. And they literally left that organization. I mean, it was boom. It was like unbelievable. They pulled out all their money and all their support. And there were many other such lies that we lived with. If it's the lie uh, that the two-state solution is the only way to go and that you have to solve the, the Palestinian problem before moving ahead, that was, that was completely, utterly 
destroyed by the Abraham Accords that showed that, that you didn't have to have a two-state solution in order to move ahead with regional peace and prosperity. Uh, if it's that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, we lived with the lie that the United States of America, Israel's greatest ally, was against the idea that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It was a horrific, absurd lie that we all lived with. And me as an American also, I was like, I love America, or I respect America at least, but this thing really stuck every day. I would wake up in the morning and know that America does not recognize our capital. It was very painful. Came at administration, turned it upside down. I happened to have been in Australia when the embassy move exactly happened. I think I was at David's house uh, early in the morning watching the, the events happening in Jerusalem. Uh, I think it was around Yom Yerushalayim. That's right, it was Yom Yerushalayim. In any case, uh, very powerful lies that we lived with were eviscerated. And so a lot of us kind of, you know, and and, you know, we as as modern human beings, we kind of forget history. So we don't remember that we lived with all these lies or that the Golan wasn't recognized, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, or in the biggest, one of the biggest lies of them all, that the United States was the funder of the Palestinian authorities budget which 400 million of which 400 million dollars of which went to pay the family of murderers of the jewish people like the united states our ally was funding today's neo-nazis it was an impossible thing it was just we lived with these things inside every day and it was always like something was bothering us inside suddenly came an administration that turned it all around and um and we made tremendous gains. We made tremendous gains, and we didn't hide it. We didn't hide it. For example, at this a few days ago, uh, uh, two days before the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. people went to to vote to elections to the polls, uh, I was an MC of an event of mayors of uh, and and, um, and the governors in Judea and Samaria uh, praying for Trump at the tomb of the, uh, tomb of the ancestors. Now, that's an unheard of thing. Like we went out on a political limb to support an American uh, president. But why did we do that? Very simple reason. You went out on a limb for us. We'll go out on a limb for you. Now, if it's a Biden administration, does that mean that we're going to just throw up our hands and, and that's it? We can't work with these people and it's back to the old way? First thing, I think the ga- some of the gains that were made are going to stick. Uh, for example, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Other gains under a Biden, potential Biden administration would probably be lost. For example, I'm sure that they'll start refunding the Palestinian Authority. But I think that, I think the question is, can we use some of those gains inside of ourselves and say, we learned that this is, the truth showed itself and that we could strive for a truth. And I, I see that people remember whatever gains were done under, under President Reagan, and everybody remembers Reagan. Not that I think, by the way, Reagan was so great for Israel, but like we can hold on to those gains of, of this Trump administration and say, this is a truth that's shown through, and this is what we should strive for. And Israel, you know, has uh, the Jewish people have been around for 3,800 years. Israel has had two commonwealths, and we're reborn in the third one now. I think that we'll be able to move forward uh, with any admin- American administration, it might be a little rougher, it might be a little bumpier, but uh, our job is to move the project forward. Okay, thank you. David? Uh, yes, I, uh, seeing uh, you raise the issue of truths, I'd like to ask you a double-barrel question on, on truths. Um, firstly, briefly, can you, can you tell us what's happening in Hebron uh, this week, why this week is particularly important? And you mentioned in passing the 
um, the Abraham Accords. Um, amongst the communities in Judea and Samaria, both the Jews and the Arabs, um, how, how has that, that set of initiatives been received? Okay, so uh, thank you, David. The, uh, this week is a very important week for the Jewish community of Hebron. During the uh, Oslo Accords, uh, which we thought of as dreaded and empowering a Palestinian authority over our land and then creating a terrorist state uh, within, uh, within the borders of Israel. Uh, with, during that time, uh, there, there was also the Hebron Accords, I think in 94, in which there was really was a giveaway of large parts of Hebron to the Palestinian Authority, and very quickly afterwards, uh, a terrorist uh, efforts to destroy the small Jewish community there. And one of the things that, that we came up with then was the idea of making the Torah portion of Chaye Sarah, which is in the book of Genesis, and, the, and we read it, we read the Torah sequentially every year. There is a Torah portion called Chaye Sarah on this Sabbath, this coming Sabbath, which talks about the purchase of Abraham, his first purchase in the land of Israel, which is a, a purchase of a burial plot for the first family of Israel. Today it's known as the Tomb of the Ancestor or, or Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Uh, and we have turned over the last 30 years uh, this Sabbath into a giant festival, which is a cross between uh, the Bible and Woodstock. And it kind of comes together on this Shabbat. And, and it's basically about 30 to 40,000 people show up in Kirat Arba Chevron in festival style, tents and, and, uh, and uh, mobile homes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and people stay in every which possible fashion, sleeping on the grass, whatever it could be. Uh, and also about 10% about, uh, of the Knesset shows up. Ministers and Knesset members show up to show solidarity. I was at the Knesset just this Monday, um, and I was filming Knesset members to send their blessings for Hebron. I couldn't, I couldn't get them not to, to jump in front of the camera to say it, because so many Knesset members are in favor of Jewish rights in Hebron, even though it's a contested and tricky place, uh, surrounded by, by Palestinian Authority control. And so this is a very important Shabbat. However, David, I want you to know that this year, under the COVID restrictions, there will be no guests in Hebron. And, oh. uh, and that's right. And so it is, it, is, it is, the police are going to be really, really strict about it. And, you know, though, it's really for the good because everybody's just so um, uh, yearning for Hebron. Everybody's yearning for Hebron so much. And so we're going to run a, a big, uh, a big uh, donation campaign here on the Israeli side and in two weeks on the American side and the Anglo side. So, um, so it's, you know, it's for the good, but, but that's, that's this weekend. Now, what was the second part of your question? The, the Abraham Accords and how it's being received by the two communities there. Okay. So for the Jews, the Abraham Accords is a very exciting time. And for, for nationalists, so-called right-wingers like myself, uh, it's actually a very important thing on two levels. On one level, it's important that we're, we've proven now that you don't need to cut up the land of Israel and divide it and create a Palestinian authority to have regional understanding, regional cooperation, regional realignment. And then there's that word peace. I don't use the word peace too much uh, because I find that it's um, uh, too high of expectations. I think that we have to have regional step-by-step, uh, -step, regional coordination, regional alignment, regional trade, regional prosperity, and, and, and understanding really. I like the word harmony better than peace because the word peace has been hijacked. Some people get angry at me and they say, Ishai, 
peace, shalom, is one of the names of God. In Judaism, shalom is one of the names of God. It's a beautiful thing. And I say to them, just like the name of God, don't take it in vain. Don't overuse that word, okay? That's what I tell people. So, so for us, it's very exciting. Moreover, it proves that we Jews and Israelis and so-called settlers and so-called right-wingers and nationalists, we, are not, we have a problem with, we don't have an, a racial problem with Arabs. We're not against their ethnicity. We're against the land takeover. And we're against the jihad, which is a, 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 a very intolerant attitude. We don't have a problem with Arabs. And so when, when you see right now there is an Israeli delegation from Samaria at, in Dubai and, and the UAE in general right now, led by Mayor Yossi Dagan, so that proves that we don't have a, a, a racial problem with, with Arabs. We are actually family. Uh, we're part of the same... We're part of the same, you know, Abrahamic tradition. We're children of Abraham. We're in the Abrahamic region. And so for us, this is a very valuable, very valuable uh, uh, initiative. And we want to see it pushed forward. For example, I want to get uh, UAE investors to help build a hotel in Hebron, in Hebron, which is going to be a joint Arab-Jewish hotel next to the Tomb of the Ancestors. We'll call it the Ibrahimi Hotel or the Abraham Hotel which will serve Jews, Arabs, Christians, whoever it is, but will be the hosts, the children of Abraham. Okay, so we're very into it. Um, the, other, the other side, which I've written about, um, that is so important to us, is that the Abraham Accords, the very name itself, is very, very wise and very helpful. Why is that? Because one of the most pernicious lies that, David, people like you have to fight in Australia and we have to fight in, in the campuses all around the world, is one ugly wor word, which splits into many other ugly words, but the main ugly word is occupation. The word occupation that is being used as a cudgel against Israel means that we are foreigners. We are abusers. We're not from here. We're white, interlopers, European colonialists. So then you have a host of other words, colonialist and, 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 and apartheid and a million other words. That, that are part of this um, under the umbrella of occupation, which is the main cudgel against Israel in the, what I call the narrative war uh, on campuses and in the media, etc. What is the one word that defeats the theory of occupation? Indigenous. Occupation meaning, what's that? Indigenous, indigenous. right? Indigenous, right. You're absolutely correct. But there's a word that, 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 that says it better in PR terms and in, and in emotional terms, that one word is Abraham. If we are the children of Abraham, then we are indigenous. We are tribal. We're an ethnic people, a Semitic people from this land. We're ancient in this land. And we and the Arabs are on par. It puts us in a totally different mindset. And so that's why people like myself have been promoting the word Abraham Accords so far and wide. Uh, uh, much more important to me, the Abraham Accords than Deal of the Century, et cetera, or Peace to Prosperity. Abraham Accords says something about me that's, and about Israel and about Jewish people living in Hebron. If I'm part of the Abraham Accords, it's because I'm the, the children of Abraham. And here's where Abraham is buried here in the land, and we're from here. So uh, on those two levels. But you also asked me, uh, just to recap, you, you said, I say it's important to us in terms of our relationships with regional Arabs. Uh, it'll, it'll promote prosperity, tourism, technology, defense against Iran, joint defense. If we have, you know, a stakehold on the beaches 
of Dubai. That's right across uh, the, uh, the, the waterway from Iran. And, you know, people can take a hint why that could be useful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is important in terms of the narrative war. Now, with regarding to Arabs, what do they think? Not so easy to know. Not so easy to know. Some Arabs tell me, um, and talking with Arabs is not easy because they're oftentimes afraid. Okay, they're oftentimes afraid of the brutal Palestinian, brutal and repressive Palestinian Authority. So they cannot show a lot of, you know, a lot of emotion about it publicly, because if they could, they would say, "Hey, the Dubai folks—they know what they're doing. Obviously, they take money and turn their desert into a flourishing place." You know, I wish we could do that. Look at Gaza City, a place that is on the beautiful Mediterranean. Uh, really, one of the best beaches on the Mediterranean is, is the Gaza area. People don't think of it that way, but that, I used to vacation in the Gaza area. Uh, but look what Dubai has taken their land and done. And look what, you know, the, the Hamas folks have done, which is uh, what we call euphemistically in, 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 uh, in our ancient language, drek. Okay, they haven't done anything with it. It, it looks like garbage over there. So, so, so many Arabs are thinking, why do they have the Abraham Accords and we can't get the Abraham Accords? On the other hand, uh, one cannot deny that jihadism is still deeply rooted um, in the Gaza Strip, in Hebron, uh, in nearby places like Egypt and Jordan and Syria. In Syria, they have state-sponsored jihadism in the form of Hezbollah. Um, also state-sponsored in the form of Hamas, Iranian-sponsored, and also Islamic Jihad. And so, uh, and in the Sinai, we have ISIS, uh, we have the ISIS-Sinai province. So, look, we are, we are, we, we want to move ahead with the Abraham Accords, but let's put it this way, we're not, we're not putting down our guns anytime soon, because jihadism is still a very prominent milieu uh, in the thinking of, of some regional Arabs, and so, so that's, that's another reason, actually, why the Abraham Accords is so important. It's important to help some Arabs come to what I now call, I came up with a new term, I call it post-jihadism. Okay? You have to come to the conclusion of post-jihadism. And the key foundation to post-jihadism is to understand that Israel is not defeatable, indefeat, un, undefeatable. No, that you cannot defeat it. Um, impregnable. Okay? It's, it, you're, not, you're never going to defeat Israel, and therefore you might as well sue for harmony because it'll better you in the long run and you're not going to get anything from a fruitless war. So those are some of the attitudes around here, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's varied. And when it takes root even more, more people will come to our side. Yeah. Um, I think Michael wanted to ask something along those lines. Yes. Uh, hi, uh, Yeshai. I think the last time I was there, you took me on a lovely tour of Hebron. Good um, to see you, Michael. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeshai, do you think that the, Biden-Harris administration will try to end the U.S. alliance with uh, Saudi Arabia? First thing, it's, it's important to understand that there's been a big change. One of the big changes from uh, the 70s was that the Arabs used to control oil, global oil, and energy, and ga- natural gas. Today, that's not, the tr- that's not a fact anymore, and the United States is the world's greatest oil producer. And that, that really is a humongous turnaround, which also affects global economy, which also affects the jihad, uh, uh, jihad's coffers, and also affects the way Saudi Arabia used to th- thinks. It, it, it used to think, 
we have both oil, we control the world through this energy, and we have this Wahhabi ideology that we want to send out. Now, uh, that has drained up, meaning to say they no longer control, they still have a lot of oil and gas, but they don't control the world market anymore. And there's two more factors. The factors are that uh, there's the Iranian threat. Never underestimate the, 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 how seriously the Saudis understand the Iranian threat. And there's another factor, which is there's a new generation of leadership. If it's uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, or MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed in, uh, in, uh, in the UAE. Uh, and, and these younger leaders, I think that they're done with the old wars and they're looking for to reform the political and therefore the religious uh, relationship of, of Islam to Israel. By the way, uh, one of the most important things that happened recently is that the, the, the Saudi Arabia has allowed Israeli flyovers over its airspace. Do not think that's a small thing. In the Middle East, that's a huge thing. It's a sign. It's a, it's a gesture. Uh, now, with regarding to, to Biden-Harris, I really don't know. Um, they have made a, there have been some, some uh, sounds that have been made about them trying to, um, you know, bring, bring Saudi Arabia to task for... <laughs> Kachuki, what was his name again? Uh, you know, the, the killing of the Kish yeah, the, the Kishoji. yeah, Kishoji, whatever the, the killing of this uh, of this reporter and 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 bring them to task and and bringing some kind of tension to bear, or maybe they're going to be more pro-Iranian. They've already signaled that, and that itself um, is 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 a split between uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia because if you empower Iran, you're basically disempowering Saudi Arabia. Uh, be that it is as it may, what I'm really concerned about is the Israeli-Saudi relationship, which is really not so simple for Saudi Arabia to swallow the Jewish state. Saudi Arabia thinks itself as the leader of the Muslim world. Uh, there's always a tension between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And th both of those are trying to come to terms with some way to, to actually accept Israel into the region. Again, Abraham Accords are a very important part of that in terms of even the imagery. I think that what, what is going to be very important in the near future is the Islamic dialogue. If Islam can come to some uh, detente, to some, to some understanding about Israel, uh, maybe, maybe in the lines of what the Catholic Church came to in the 60s, which is called Nostra Aetate, which is like, okay, we're still the chosen religion, but... Jews have a covenant with God, and so too if, if the Muslims would come to a similar type of conclusion, Islam is the chosen religion, but still the Jews have their own thing, and it says it in our Quran in a few verses. Uh, that's going to be a, a very important thing to help ameliorate the relationship between, help smooth the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And so my answer to your question is, if Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have a split, we say to Saudi Arabia, hey, you need defense. We could be your, your defense contractor here in the Middle East. We just need your help with the Palestinian problem. And that would be a wonderful way for us to give uh, each other, have each other's back. You deal with the Palestinian problem in various ways, and we'll help you with your Iranian problem. Um, that's one way that I could see, a positive way that I could see out of uh, a, a split between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Okay, David, I'll throw back to you. Just before I do, um, people, um, now's the time to start thinking of some questions. If you want to, um, if you've got anything on, on your mind, I can see a couple of questions on the chat, which we can come to. Um, but uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, we've got a couple of hands up, so that's good. Um, David, you can... Uh, I'll, you just, can... I'll just do uh, one, one last thing. Uh, 
Um, I'm sharing a photo here, Shai. Can you see it? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what that's a, the, the significance of that photo? Because when I walked around Hevron with you, I saw a number of these signs. There's, um, as we said before, there's like a war of narratives or what I call the narrative war. And um, one, of the, one of the efforts uh, has been, let me take a step back. When you want to uproot something, where do you grab it? By the root. And so uh, the enemies of Israel have a keen sense, a keen sense of what the roots of, of Israel are. While sometimes Jews don't have as keen of a sense of what the roots of Israel are. For Israel, the roots of Israel is Tel Aviv and modern Zionism and Herzl and economy and television and culture and all these things. But for the Arabs, they have a keen sense that the real roots of the Jewish people are in the three places that the sages tell us that the forefathers and mothers purchased. And that is uh, the tomb of the ancestors in Hebron, in Hebron, the tomb of Joseph in Shechem, which the Arab called Nablus and the, the Temple Mount, uh, which the Arabs called uh, the Haram al-Sharif, where now they've changed its name to the Al-Aqsa compound or complex. And so these three places, which are both holy, historical, uh, are also strategic. Hmm. And so they have gone through many efforts to try to hold on to those places through uh, population expansion, uh, through terror, uh, destroying the tomb of Joseph and kicking out the, Jew, the Jews there, uh, controlling the, the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount through the Jordanian waqf in, in that, that controls this spot in Jerusalem, uh, and in Hebron through intimidation and also through uh, what I call the narrative war, which is the effort to erase our connection. In fact, the effort is to erase every intellectual construct of Zionism, to erase the importance of the Bible, to erase Jewish history and turn it into a bad history of a, of a, of a colonialist people uh, who, who are doing a Holocaust today and apartheid on others. And really, and, and archaeology, a constant battle against the veracity of archaeology. And so in Hebron, the narrative war takes the form of that the Jews are extremists and that they're stealing Palestinian land and that no longer can the Palestinians live in any normalcy or decency and can't visit their mom and can't go to school because there's these nasty settlers who've expropriated their land, et cetera, et cetera. And that sign that you showed is really the, uh, our effort to countermand that, those lies by saying, wait a minute, the Jewish people have been living in this town with, without break almost for 2,000 years. Uh, in the 1500s, we already built up a big synagogue. Uh, the, the exiles from Spain came to, uh, to, to Hebron and built up a synagogue and built up a Jewish quarter. And this all existed until 1929 when a horrific jihadist riot swept through the town and killed 67 Jews, murdered 67 Jews in a horrific fashion. And then the British were in charge at the time, and they kicked us out of Hebron for the first time in 2000 years and made the land Yudinrein. They ethnically cleansed the Jews from the town. And now you're claiming that we're stopping your life when we make up only 3% of this town and exist on one defensive street? That's absurd. And it's, an, it's a narrative war lie. And we do our best to show the truth and the history of, of Hebron while also keeping it light. You know, I can't all day long remind people about the 1929 
riots because that also hurts my tourism. I can't be talking about death all the time. I have to be talking about life. And so, and so we're trying to make it into a touristic destination. This is the tomb of Abraham. In fact, we're renaming Hebron City of Abraham. Just that simple. That's the, that's the slogan, Hebron City of Abraham. Um, and so it's, it's an, an incredibly important battle. But that sign that you showed was our effort, one of our efforts to countermand the, the incessant lies that we are somehow, um, that we are somehow uh, uh, destroying Arab life and, and, our, and our encroaching on them. It's quite the opposite. Our Jewish life was destroyed, and now we're coming back strong. Okay, thank you. Okay, we'll, um, we'll open up to the audience now. Um, Leon, you were first, and then Dennis, and if anybody else wants to ask a question, now's the time to indicate. Now, Leon doesn't have a camera, so um, please unmute yourself and ask your question, Leon. Uh, good evening, uh, Yishai. Can you hear me? I hear you great, Leon. Good to hear from you. Yes. Now, Yishai, um, I've asked other people this question, other guest speakers. Um, I'd like to ask you the same question. Um, what do you think motivates the U.S. Democratic Party to empower Iran. Now, the Iranian regime is a Shiite regime. To appease that regime uh, alienates, alienates the majority, one would think would alienate the majority of Muslims in the world who are Sunni. Now, um, I can't reconcile that uh, those facts with the the contention that the American effort to empower Iran is simply appeasement of Muslim regret. Let's not forget, for example, that the Twin Towers were destroyed by Sunni Muslims, not Shiite Iranian ones. So what motivates the U.S., the Democratic Party of the U.S., to empower Iran? Um... It's, it's an interesting question, Leon. It, 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 uh, the, the, the answer is, you, you asked it specifically about, about Iran, but one could, one, could really, one could really ask that question about a whole, a whole panoply of values, which um, everybody hears me? I, you just got to sound okay. a little different. Everybody can hear me out there? No, All good. All good. Okay. Sure. Okay, good. It's... It, it, I, you know what, let me, Leon, let me, let me take a step back. I, I want to I say something. My job is, although I, I think about these things, my job is not to analyze and understand America and their relationship with other places. I, I sound like an American, uh, but, but my blood is blue and white. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think about Israel and, and pushing it forward. And so I can only answer that question so far as it's important to, to, to Israel. I think I, I did that already. But, but with regarding to just trying to touch on what you're saying, look, there, there's a whole host of values. I think that President Obama tried to empower every uh, regime here in the Middle East that was more extremist and more radical and more jihadist. If it was the Muslim Brotherhood and if it, if it was to kind of um, uh, destabilization is the way that people like President Obama work for their global agenda. That's the way I understand it. They, they want to see, uh, they're Marxist. They want to see class warfare. A new kind of class warfare is, is you know, racial warfare or, or, or regional tensions. And in their mind, 
uh, when when the new world will arise from the kind of ashes of the old world. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's the way my, my Russian background, my parents are both Russian, came from the Soviet Union. That's the way I understand these kind of folks. My mom said something very famous very, in our family and, and very funny. She said about President Obama, she said, he's not black, he's not white, he's not Muslim, he's not Christian, he's not green, he's red. That's what she said, okay? So that was, that was her statement. Again, this is not exactly my field, but but I feel that these type of people, what, what they want to do is to they want to do subversive acts, destabilization acts. To them, the Jewish state is something that is bothersome. Conservative ideas are bothersome. And they sometimes empower enemies in order to, uh, in order, un unscrupulous enemies, in order to both benefit personally uh, and also strike at their enemies that they can't strike at directly. You know, the Democrats... Now, not all Democrats are like that. You know, many good Jewish, decent Democrats and other Democrats. There's a lot of very good, decent people. But the so-called jihad squad would not blink at seeing Israel get nuked. Uh, <laughs> that's just the truth. And so, and so uh, they like to empower these kind of forces to do their, to outsource the Holocaust. But you know what? Why don't you ask another question, Leon? What about Germany? Why would Germany be so in cahoots with Iran? Why, you know, why are they so interested? They, they have financial gain from Iran. It's a huge market. But, but you know, maybe there are forces today that don't want to do the Holocaust because it it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, doesn't look good on the resume. But, uh, but maybe you outsource it to somebody else. Maybe that's some, some clues for you about, about how some people are thinking. But... Uh, my, my question, as I said before, is really how do we stay strong here in Israel? And sometimes, like when President Obama came on the scene, he did a lot of stuff to empower the bad guys. And yet that actually caused the Arab Spring, which caused the disillusion of many powerful Arab entities. It caused the civil war in Syria, making it a much weaker country. Uh, the, the, the terrorism that happened in Egypt caused it to stop being a tourist attraction and a lot of its factories shut down. And so therefore that became a much weaker state. When I was a kid, Egypt and Syria were very powerful and scary states. So President Obama came to empower anti-Israel forces. He ended up disempowering them. Uh, and so sometimes people try to hurt us, but it goes against their, against what their, uh, their interests, their wishes, like the Purim story. Uh, and I, I want to tell you that when we say Iran, we're also saying a misnomer because don't forget Iranian people, Iranian people detest the regime, detest this regime. And so many of them would be let, want to see themselves freed from this regime. I think that we could count on the Iranian people as being allies of Israel, certainly not the regime, but the people. Mm, thank you. Okay, uh, Dennis, if you can unmute yourself. Then we've got Ron, Jeff, Ruthie, and Ruven. Right. I'll try to make my answer shorter. Hello, Yashay. Uh, Howdy. I, I'd want you to put on an American hat, even though you you only have an American accent. Uh, I want to make the assumption, firstly, uh, Biden wins. Uh, he's won. Uh, and there's no challenge. I want to add a further uh, supposition, and that is that Biden does not... He's 77. He seems to be on the edge of dementing. Uh, he may have to step aside well before his term is, is over. You then have Kamala Harris, who is further to the left. Uh, if Biden is a, a clone of, of Obama, then certainly Harris is to the left of that. 
there is the therefore the, the possibility that she might ask that the embassy be moved back to Tel Aviv. Uh, uh, she may want to force upon Israel further discussions and negotiations with the Palestinians. How do you see that playing out? Is Israel impregnable from its current position in the face of American negative policy? Well, Dennis, the good news is that we've we've had a lot of experiences. As I was laying out beforehand, it's it's not like it's not like a a, a Biden Harris administration is something that we've never dealt with. Um, we've dealt with 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 similar. You know, we we had Clinton and we had Obama and we and and I think the the uh, the the original father of them all, Jimmy Carter, still alive, still ticking. You know, still ticking. Um, and uh, I think that we've learned a lot. And Israelis. Israelis used to buy much more into um, the idea that the American president wants something and we have to do that. And that's where the Sinai, uh, the Sinai land giveaway to Egypt was born uh, under, under the Begin-Sadat agreements that were kind of foisted upon them by Carter. If you, read about, if you read about it, I think Israel's in a different place. Israel's in a different place, both regionally and also internally. It's, it's a little bit more... Um, I have the Hebrew word in my head, but I can't think of the English one, which is just more internally tough, a little bit more rugged, a little bit more calloused, and, and a little bit less willing to, to bend in, in that kind of way, especially coming in the heels of the Trump administration, which I think really, as I said before, showed us a way forward. So I'm not too scared about that. Uh, I think that, I think that, um, I think that the, I think that the real, the real danger by a, by a Biden Harris administration is for America, and I, I think that uh, for, for America is the one that that is going to have to deal with 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 really the, the divisiveness and the maybe the uh, the um, large scope uh, voter fraud. That I don't know. I really don't know. And again, I don't want to get into that because it's just not my business. Uh, but I think that we're going to be able to deal with that. Obviously, we're doing our best to already, already uh, inoculate people from the idea of a two-state solution. We've been doing that forever. And uh, the Palestinian Authority has done a great job of teaching us what a bad idea it is to give land to them or to their, uh, uh, you know, their twin brother, Hamas. And so, so I think that that's, that's, that's uh, one thing. I don't think the embassy is ever moving back. I think that that's... You know what? Let's just say maybe the Trump administration... If they don't get back into power, maybe they gave us a great send-off, a great send-off, put us on the right track. And I hope that we'll keep on going with that track. Okay. Ron, um, please unmute yourself. Hello, Ishaq. Good evening. My name is Ron. Um, we talk a lot about um, the alliance, uh, the, the, you know, the relationship between Israel and, um, and the United States. Um, but we often don't talk about the European Union, which is the biggest trading mm. partner for Israel. And they tend to be more Palestinians than the Palestinians. They were cold about the Abraham Accords. And uh, just last week they referred, and they voted in the United Nations, they voted to uh, call the Kotel Haram al-Sharif um, and give it the, um, which I consider to be an anti-Judaic, rather not just an anti-Israeli, but an anti-Judaic, um, resolution how will israel deal with this given the economic realities and um what would happen to um 
Judea Samaria E1 with building programs over the next few years, given uh, the fact that the European Union is more likely to be pretty close to the ideas of Biden and Harris? First thing, I like your term anti-Judaic. I, I, may, I may borrow that term. I like it. Uh, I, like, I like the sound of that. I think it, it resonates nicely. Um, I, I like terminology. Terminology is important, so that, that's, I'd like that. Um, I, I, your question is really in the same line as the last question, which is how are we going to deal with it? And my answer is, is the same, that we've, we dealt with it in the past. We'll keep going. So, look, sometimes the world is with it. Like, there's very rarely the world is with us. This Trump thing was an aberration, right? Mm. So it's not like we're so totally unused to going at it alone and, and keep, keep uh, you know, pushing it forward. Uh, it, so we are, we are, we are pretty, you know, ready to, to fight again. We are doing our best. You know, one of the most important things in this whole, in this whole formula is our children. How do we educate our children? And I think that you could see by the Israeli, Israeli voting patterns that there's more and more Israelis that are nationalists, that are traditional, that are, you would call a conservative. We just use that term less here. Um, and so our politics, our internal politics are moving so-called rightward or more nationalistically. And that's very, very important. With regarding to Europe, I mean, they are fools. It, 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 they are so obsessed. And, and by the way, it's not all of Europe. We're talking Western Europe. We have an Eastern Europe, uh, folks like Hungary and the Ukraine and, and sometimes Poland. We get in a fight with them a little bit, but still we have a good relationship with Poland and the Czech Republic and the Eastern Bloc countries. It turns out, by the way, that the Hungarians were not anti-Semitic. They were just xenophobic, meaning to say they really don't like others in general, uh, including Jews in their country. Uh, but, uh, but, they, uh, but when we are our own ethnic national state like them, and we're both battling the, the jihad, um, we have a great alliance with, with them, with, with people, even in Austria, even in Austria, Sebastian Kurtz, you know, a great ally of Israel. So we have allies and you see what's happening in France. They're finally, 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 finally starting to wake up. Hey, I think we have a problem here, you know? And so, and so, and they have a major problem. Um, so, so we have allies. Let's also remember other allies like India, uh, which is a, a big democracy, uh, has, has an interest in technology. A lot of Israelis visit there and also has a, has a Muslim problem vis-a-vis uh, Pakistan and, and internal, you know, jihadism. Uh, I think, uh, did you hear this, this story? I, I don't know. I don't, I forgot the details of it, but recently uh, the prime minister of, of India uh, was part of a big event where they built a, a Hindu uh, shrine on top of a, a burnt down mosque, which was on top of a Hindu shrine. And so I liked that very much. It was like, to me, this was a sign we're building the third temple. You know, they burnt down our shrine. They built their shrine. We, you know, maybe we, maybe somehow that gets replaced and we celebrate our shrine. The point is India sometimes knows how to be vociferous about and clear about who the boss is. And they're an ally of ours as well. Also, we have international Christians. My good friend, Josh Reinstein is the head of the Christian Allies Caucus. And there are Christians in South America, in Africa, in your country, in England, who are part of the idea, part of the idea that, that God is, is bringing the Jewish people back to the land of Israel, and they're connected on that level. Um, we even have regional allies like Azerbaijan, 
which is a Muslim country that, that buys arms from Israel. In fact, we just got into hot water with another ally of ours, which is Armenia, uh, about selling arms to Azerbaijan. So um, we have other allies. We're going to rely on them. I think that more and more people, more and more countries are going to start coming around that uh, that it's more useful to be friends with Israel because we have a very deep biblical command, which is if you can't beat them, join them, okay? And since Israel is not really that beatable, it seems like, for all of its internal squabbling, it's really, it's really a country that's still there and it's thriving. Damn it, it's thriving, okay? And you can see it when you walk in the streets of Israel and our enemies see it. They're not that dumb. And so, so, okay, you know, there's another scare and another scare and, and Biden-Harris and the Europeans and all that, but all their stuff turns to mush. You know, I sometimes want to shake their heads and say, what is the point of your endless war? It's, it's nothing. You've, you're not, you didn't beat us in the Holocaust. You haven't beat us in the last uh, 100 years of Zionism. What, what is the point of your efforts? It's just a waste of your time. And in the meantime, it's your countries that are, that are starting to uh, fall apart at the seams. I say the same thing to Arabs a lot of times. I say, what is the point of your war against us? We are doing fine. And in the meantime, your civilization, look at your great countries. They're falling apart. Is there, is there, I say to my Arab neighbors, I say, is there one good Arab country? Oh, look, it's the UAE. That's like the one good Arab country. And look, look what consciousness they're coming to, what realizations they're coming to. Mm. So what can, what can I say to you? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be kept up at night because, you know, the, the Germans are, uh, are still anti-Israel. It's just not going to keep me up at night. Okay. Um, Jeff, I'll come to you, but just before we do, I want to pick up on a, a question that's on the chat group. And it says, and it asks you, Yeshai, how does Israel mitigate the effects of the joint list or any other left-leaning entity um, uh, internal to Israel who are set to undermine Israel's normal, norm, normalcy with the Muslim nations? So what's the, what does the joint list have to, joint list have to say about all of, the, all of this that's going on? That is a very good question. That is a very good question because that, that is a very interesting question to me because the joint list, uh, which is uh, three Arab parties in our Knesset. I was just in the Knesset on Monday and I saw them all chatting and smiling. And you have the leader of that party. His name is um, Ayman Uda. He actually comes from the same place where I come from in Israel. And I know his uh, larger tribe and family. Uh, and he is anti-normalization, basically anti-Israel, calls Israel every name in the book and is always pushing for a two-state solution. But interestingly, just last night, as you're asking that question, just last night I saw a whole show about one of the other leaders in that party whose name is, whose name is Abbas... Uh, oh, wait one second. A rabbi in Brooklyn has the same last name as his. Mansur, Abbas Mansur. That's what it is. Abbas Mansur. And this guy, Abbas Mansur, is an alternative leader in the joint list party. Now, the joint list also has Ahmed Tibi, just famous anti-Israel people. Ahmed Tibi has a big poster of Yasser Arafat in his office in the Knesset. And look, to me, the anti-Israel Arabs that, li that are Israeli Arabs really undermine everything. Why do they undermine everything? Because we're saying n Arabs that have an opportunity to live a decent life in Israel should be pro-Israel. But it turns out that even with good education and with good, um, with good opportunity, a lot of times they turn anti-Israel. At the same time, this guy uh, that I mentioned, 
uh, Abbas Mansur, he is actually pull, pushing a different line, which is more in the Abraham Accords style line. And he's saying, by the way, do you, do you folks know what is the number one problem in the Arab-Israeli society that they want Israel to help them with? It's internal Arab violence, Arab on Arab violence. The number one issue in the Arab sector is, hey, Israel, help us put an end to the violence in our community. And at the same time, they're like, well, but we're anti-Israel because we don't respect Israel. But can you help us with the violence that, that, you know, we'd love it to turn on you, but it turns inwardly on us. Can you help us stop that and mitigate that? I find that to be... There's something, there's something absurd about it. This, I bet you an Australian or British person could say it better than me about the absurdity of, on the one hand, you know, being anti-Israel, on the other hand, asking us to help them deal with their internal violence. Um, there are good voices in the Arab world. They are often marginalized and they can't be heard. This guy named Abbas, he's starting, no, nothing to do with, with Mahmoud Abbas. He is, he is starting to have a different tone. But I would ask a question, which is, did the experiment of giving everybody, uh, Israeli Arabs, the vote, which was a very hurried decision in the 50s, did it work out exactly correctly? Or should Israel think of itself more like a, like a Japan or like a uh, Armenia or ethnic national states in our region that really aren't so quick to give forces that want to undermine them the same rights to vote in their country and to undermine it? Now, what I'm saying is, seemingly radical but uh i would think about it i would think about did did that work out did it work out especially given the context that some people want us to give the vote to palestinian arabs if we ever uh are able to to uh, uh to incorporate and, and be sovereign in judea and samaria what do we do with those arabs i think that the experiment has showed that it's not so simple to give all peoples in the land you know an equal equal footing in the vote and maybe we should find other ways of giving them rights but not necessarily with, uh, with, with, being, with being empowered to undermine the Jewish character of the state of Israel. So it's, it's, I, it's, it's a very good question. It's a question that I'm very interested in myself. Uh, lastly, I just want to say I know a lot of Arabs, including from the village where Ayman Uda is from. I know the, the, the chief of the, the – the, the, he's not an imam. He's a mufti there. In, uh, his name is uh, Sharif uh, uh, Uda. And he is a friend of mine, and he is very embarrassed by Ayman Uda, and said to me, the Abraham Accords is the only way forward. So he's the religious leader in the place of Ayman Uda. Sadly, not always great leaders, politicians get to the top. That's who it is today. Okay. Um, now, look, we are coming up to time. Um, Jeff and Ruben, I, I mean, I, you have questions every week. So perhaps I might let Ruthie have a, a question, uh, and then David, and, and that might just about take us out. So I'm sorry, but... We, uh, we just don't have enough time. So, Ruthie, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, Ishai, you're against a two-state solution. How do you see the Palestinian issue resolved given that the reproduction rate is so high? And as you mentioned, are we going towards an apartheid state, ethnic state? What are we going to do? And which will be against Jewish values. Well, the first thing I would say, that last thing you said, uh, Jewish values, I would say, let's put that as a question mark. Is it or against? Is it or is it not against Jewish values? I want to tell you something about Jewish values. I want to tell you a little story. I was in uh, New York right after that shooting in Pittsburgh, 
And I said, everybody in this synagogue should have a gun, or at least you should have two guns. You know, somebody should be carrying a gun. And everybody said, looked at me and said, no, guns, ew, it's abhorrent in a synagogue. That's against Jewish values. That same week, I was in California in San Diego. And I said, everybody should have a gun here. You guys should protect yourself. They're like, what? of course. And the people started pulling out their guns and showing it to me. They're like, it's Jewish values to have a gun. Of course, we have a gun here. But what was the difference? One was living in the Northeast of America, which is liberal. And one was living in, in San Diego, which is which is which is conservative, and therefore they had a different concept of what Jewish values were, based on where they were living. What Jewish values? That's a very tricky thing. Uh, uh, are, are we a Western style country or are we an Eastern style country? We're an amalgam. We're an amalgam. Okay. So how how do you how do you solve the problem? And this is an article that I wrote in, in the New York Times about alternatives to the two state solution, and I gave a few examples. I'll just give some of them very quickly. Uh, one of them is that the two state solution has already been done. The two-state solution uh, happened already in 1923 when 77% of the land that was supposed to be the land of Israel was given to the Hashemites by the British uh, to make an Arab state, of which today 80% recognize themselves, uh, identify themselves as Palestinian. So there's Jewish land that was given away to Arabs, and they have a Palestinian state. It's called Jordan. Jordan is Palestine. In fact, most of the Arabs that live today in the West Bank came from Jordan when Jordan pushed in, took over our land, which was never recognized, their, their annexation of the land in 1948 till 1967. We say, why don't the Arabs that live in the West Bank get back their Jordanian citizenship, but live in Israel as Israeli residents? I was a resident for many years in America. If you ever, Ruthie, moved to Japan, you would forever be a resident because you're non-Japanese. Nobody ever says Japan is an apartheid because they don't give uh, white people uh, the vote. It's an ethnic national state. There are many ethnic national states. Nobody says anything about Armenia or Poland or Hungary because they're ethnic national states. Why? Because they're trying to protect their ethnicity. We are an embattled ethnicity. Don't we deserve less than one half of 1% of the Middle East of our ancestral land to be an ethnic national state? So we say, here's a simple way to solve it. Give them their Jordanian citizenship back, but stay here. Live as Israeli residents. Not so bad. Every Palestinian I know says all I want is Israeli residency. But vote in your Palestinian state next door, which is Jordan. That's one example. Another example is give them local rule over cities like Hebron, Ramallah, Shechem. Let them have their mayor, their courts, their thing. Of course, it'll be Israel. And they'll pay taxes to Israel and be part of Israel, but they'll feel that they are living in their tribal way and they're in, in, in the way that, that Arabs uh, 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 rule themselves. By the way, Ruthie, let me just ask you a question. Uh, one second, hold on. Leah, can you turn on the volume, please? That's my daughter. She's on Zoom in school. Um, let me ask you one question, Ruthie. Which Arab states have run democracy and have the vote? Let's think about it. <laughs> The answer is zero, not a one, not one, not one Arab country runs any kind of form of democracy. So if we don't give them democracy that makes us an apartheid state, it's absurd. It's an absurdity. There's, there is no democracy or votes. Even the UAE, which is a very forward thinking country, is nothing, nothing even close to a democracy. It just doesn't work that way. They rule themselves in clans by strong leaders. Okay, so here's Hebron, rule yourselves here. Here's Shechem, rule yourselves here. But that doesn't mean that we need to give you the vote in our Knesset to decide for us if we should keep kosher or Shabbat in the, in the army or in the, or in the government. That's absurd. 
I don't think anybody came out of the Holocaust uh, thinking to themselves, uh, wow, I just came out of the, the, the fires of Auschwitz. Let's make a democratic state and make sure the Arabs have the vote in it. In the meantime, they're trying to kill us. Let's just be real. Israel's an ethnic national state created to defend our ethnic minority in this region. That's the way I understand it. I don't use the term Jewish and democratic. To me, the democratic aspect is smaller. It's a way that we rule ourselves. Just like Japan is Japanese and democratic, but nobody ever says Japanese and democratic. They just say Japanese. They run a democracy for themselves. So I think that there, there are many, and, there are, and I've given, I have at least three more suggestions about how to move forward. Uh, let me finish off, Ruth, with one more phrase for you, okay? What's the real vision for peace in the Middle East? What's the real vision for a relationship with the Arabs in the Middle East? The real vision is a strong ethnic national Jewish state surrounded by strong ethnic national Arab states. We want them to succeed. We want our 400 million Arab neighbors to succeed. It's not going to be successful through, through chipping away at Israel. That's not going to be good for anybody. We want a strong ethnic national Jewish state with minorities that are empowered to have uh, to have uh, uh, upward mobility and good health care, et cetera, et cetera, good education. But don't try to undermine the Jewish state. And thereby, when you give us the respect of having our Jewish state, you will be blessed yourselves. And we'll have strong Arab states, a strong, beautiful Lebanon, a strong Syria, a strong Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, a strong UAE, you know, a normal area. That's what's going to help us flourish, not trying to erode our Jewish rights in the land of Israel. That's Thank my opinion. You. Um, David, uh, we'll, we'll make you the final question, so please unmute yourself and ask your question. Yishai is just telling his daughter off. Uh, Yishai, uh, thank you very much today on behalf of everybody. With the uh, deals that have been made with the Arab countries, the normalisation, uh, Netanyahu has made a promise to hold off on declaring any sovereignty of any of the West Bank. How is that affecting your uh, advocacy efforts in uh, achieving, which is the very thing that you want to do, that, that, uh, that sovereignty of the West Bank? Sure. Good question, David. I just want to say, David, that um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu made it clear many times, he said it many times, that this, what, this, this thing that he said to the UAE that we're not going to declare sovereignty was a limited time phenomenon. And, and about two or three weeks ago, was it? Uh, the Israeli government announced 5,000 new apartments, new uh, um, units in Judea and Samaria to be built, including in, in the town that I live in. So, um, and we have about uh, 90 new apartments slated to be built in Hebron. So, look, maybe Prime Minister Netanyahu didn't declare sovereignty, but the most important thing that happened, I, and I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't mention this earlier, which is the Pompeo Doctrine, which recognized the international law legality of Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. Uh, this was enunciated by Secretary of State Pompeo. This was in America's view of what international law is, that it's, that it's not inconsistent with international law. All that's fancy words for saying that the United States recognizes Jewish rights in Judea and Samaria, which makes sense because Jews are from Judea, right? It's just a perfect sense. And... Oh, hold on just one second. I had a little... Oh. One, one second, friends. I had a little technical uh, glitch here. Okay, no, we can, can hear you. Shy. Okay. We just can't see you. Okay. 
That's the, there we go. Uh, you, you see, that's the Jewish people. We 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 fall down, we get back up again. Um, um, and so and so, let's just again. I, I kind of want to help everybody be real. Let's be real. Really, there are six hundred thousand Jews living in Judea and Samaria, if you include Eastern Jerusalem. Um, so that's one out of ten Israelis, and we're going to keep growing here. This is our ancestral homeland. This is where we're from. We yearn to come back to these places. Yes, there are Arabs here. Big deal. We'll be able to deal with them, give them decency and respect as long as they give us decency and respect back. Decent Arabs that want to live with Israel and be what I call post-jihadist are welcome to it, uh, are, are welcome to a relationship with us. Those who want to fight with us, they can fight and they'll lose. And that's part of the ethos of Israel as well, which is we're ready to fight. Uh, we're, we're ready to defend ourselves and we're ready to defend ourselves for the next uh, 4,000 years. So, um, so, so, that, that's my answer to you. My answer is, yeah. okay, he didn't, he didn't announce sovereignty yet, but a prime minister will, because this is, there's, a, there's a justice to our claim. There's a historical justice, a legal justice, a religious justice. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what, what my old Greek landlord in New York City used to call the call of the blood. Our blood calls to come back to these places and to hold on to them. And uh, I want to also uh, just say that Efforts like uh, the AJAs in, in places like Australia make a big difference for us. That kind of advocacy makes a, a global, global atmosphere uh, when there's a fight against sponsoring Palestinian Authority terror uh, or the push to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Coming all the way from Australia makes an impact, a global impact on us. And more and more people are, are going to recognize the beauty, the majesty, the, the, the general goodness of Israel and are going to line up with it. Thank you very much. Look, we're going to have to wrap it up. Yisha, I want to thank you again for joining us. Um, you, you just talk so much sense. I always enjoy listening to you. Um, and so thank you on behalf of everybody. I'll hand back to David to just uh, make some closing remarks. Okay, look, thank you, Alan. And uh, Yisha, look, it's, uh, it's wonderful that you could join us. I apologise profusely for mucking up the, uh, the time zone calculation. My fault entirely. Uh, but you've uh, done us a, a mitzvah there because I'll have to correct some correspondence for future guests. Um, <laughs> it's always wonderful uh, connecting with you. We did have a tour uh, organised of Israel um, and along came coronavirus in March. Uh, one of the aspects of the tour was to visit Hebron and have uh, Yishai Fleischer as a guide around uh, Maratha Machpela. Uh, I hope we can uh, reinstitute that in the not too distant future and uh, engage you as a guide on your home ground, uh, Yeshai, that would be wonderful. Now, finally, it would be my greatest pleasure, David. I, I can't wait to see you and the rest of the AJA and the good folks from Australia. And uh, Corona has kept us a little bit divided, but at the end, uh, how do we say absence makes the heart grow fonder? And I think that Jews and lovers of Israel throughout the world are yearning to stay connected to Israel uh, through through a Zoom like this one, through the AJA, and through coming back soon after Corona. Amen. Ne as we say, we next year next year in person. That's what we say, next yeah. year in person. Hashanaba. Okay, thanks, David. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Yishai. Thanks, Michael. Uh, on that note, we'll say goodnight, and uh, we look forward to seeing you all again next week. So from me and everybody else, it's good evening to you all. Bye for now. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my talk with the AJA uh, with the Australian 
a Jewish association down under. And I miss those guys so much. They're great folks. And you know who else I miss? I miss you so much. Uh, you are so much part of my life. I love to hear from you. Please write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com or yishai, yishai fleischer.com. Uh, the show is long, but now it's come to an end. So I really want to thank you so much for being with me. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network for hosting. I want to thank Tabitha, Ben Bresky, and Moshe Herman for getting the show out through all of our channels. I want to thank you for supporting. And this is a great time to support uh, the network and my efforts as well. Please check out yishaifleischer.com. And don't be bashful. Go to that donate page. And it makes such a tremendous difference when you, uh, when you help us out and you help us uh, get that message out to the world. Uh, thank you to David Menashe for sponsoring the show this week uh, in honor of his father. And thank you to God Almighty for the opportunity to be in Judea and to send out the light and message of Judea uh, to the world. That is God's uh, greatest gift to us in 2,000 years, the fulfillment of his promises. So lots of energy and lots of love and lots of good things and lots of blessings from the land of blessings. And I send you my best. Lots of love. From the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs on this Shabbat, Chayi Sarah, Shabbat Shalom. Shalom everybody, this is Jeremy Gimpel from the Land of Israel Network, but also from the Land of Israel Fellowship. We have members from 31 countries joining us every week, Sunday, live at 6 p.m. For those that can't make it live, they get a direct recording just go to thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship. We're growing together. We're learning together. We're celebrating together. The gates are open for all who want to come and join. Okay.